0: Book Seven, Chapters Eighteen through Thirty Five of The City of God This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox dot Recording by Darren l Slider, www.logoslibrary.org. dot org. The City of God by saint Augustine of Hippo, Book Seven, Chapter Eighteen A far more credible account of these gods is given when it is said that they were men, and that to each one of them sacred rites and solemnities were instituted according to his particular genius, manners, actions, circumstances, which rites and solemnities, by gradually creeping through the souls of men, which are like demons, and eager for things which yield them sport, were spread far and wide, the poets adorning them with lies, and false spirits seducing men to receive them. For it is far more likely that some youth, either impious himself, or afraid of being slain by an impious father, being desirous to reign, dethroned his father, than that, according to Varro's interpretation, Saturn was overthrown by his son Jupiter. For cause which belongs to Jupiter is before seed which belongs to Saturn. For had this been so, Saturn would never have been before Jupiter, nor would he have been the father of Jupiter. For cause always precedes seed, and is never generated from seed.' But when they seek to honour by natural interpretation most vain fables or deeds of men even the acutest men are so perplexed that we are compelled to grieve for their folly also chapter nineteen They said, says Varro, that Saturn was wont to devour all that sprang from him, because seeds returned to the earth from whence they sprang. And when it is said that a lump of earth was put before Saturn to be devoured instead of Jupiter, it is signified, he says, that before the art of ploughing was discovered, seeds were buried in the earth by the hands of men. The earth itself, then, and not seeds, should have been called Saturn, because it, in a manner, devours what it has brought forth when the seeds which have sprung from it return again into it. And what has Saturn's receiving of a lump of earth instead of Jupiter to do with this, that the seeds were covered in the soil by the hands of men? Was the seed kept from being devoured, like other things, by being covered with the soil? For what they say would imply that he who put on the soil took away the seed, as Jupiter is said to have been taken away when the lump of soil was offered to Saturn instead of him, and not rather that the soil, by covering the seed, only caused it to be devoured more eagerly then in that way jupiter is the seed and not the cause of the seed as was said a little before but what shall men do who cannot find anything wise to say because they are interpreting foolish things saturn has a pruning-knife that says varro is on account of agriculture Certainly in Saturn's reign there as yet existed no agriculture, and therefore the former times of Saturn are spoken of, because, as the same Varro interprets the fables, the primeval man lived on those seeds which the earth produced spontaneously. Perhaps he received a pruning-knife when he had lost his sceptre, that he who had been a king and lived at ease during the first part of his time should become a laborious workman whilst his son occupied the throne.' then he says that boys were wont to be immolated to him by certain peoples the carthaginians for instance and also that adults were immolated by some nations for example the gauls because of all seeds the human race is the best what need we say more concerning this most cruel vanity let us rather attend to and hold by this that these interpretations are not carried up to the true god a living incorporeal unchangeable nature from whom a blessed life enduring for ever may be obtained but that they end in things which are corporeal temporal mutable and mortal And whereas it is said in the fables that Saturn castrated his father Chelus, this signifies, says Varro, that the divine seed belongs to Saturn and not to Celus. for this reason, as far as the reason can be discovered, namely that in heaven nothing is born from seed. But, lo, Saturn, if he is the son of Chelus, is the son of Jupiter. For they affirm times without number, and that emphatically, that the heavens are Jupiter." Thus those things which come not of the truth do very often, without being impelled by any one, themselves overthrow one another. He says that Saturn was called Kronos, which in the Greek tongue signifies a space of time, because without that seed cannot be productive. These and many other things are said concerning Saturn, and they are all referred to seed. But Saturn surely, with all that great power, might have sufficed for seed. Why are other gods demanded for it especially Liber and Libera, that is Ceres, concerning whom again, as far as seed is concerned, he says as many things as if he had said nothing concerning Saturn. Chapter twenty Now among the rites of Ceres, those Eleusinian rites are much famed which were in the highest repute among the Athenians, of which Varro offers no interpretation except with respect to corn, which Ceres discovered, and with respect to Proserpine, whom Ceres lost, Orcus having carried her away and this proserpine herself, he says, signifies the fecundity of seeds. But as this fecundity departed at a certain season, whilst the earth wore an aspect of sorrow through the consequent sterility, there arose an opinion that the daughter of Ceres, that is, fecundity itself, who was called proserpine, from proserpere, to creep forth to spring, had been carried away by orcus, and detained among the inhabitants of the netherworld, which circumstance was celebrated with public mourning." but since the same fecundity again returned there arose joy because proserpine had been given back by orcus and thus these rites were instituted then varro adds that many things are taught in the mysteries of ceres which only refer to the discovery of fruits chapter twenty one now as to the rites of liber whom they have set over liquid seeds and therefore not only over the liquors of fruits among which wine holds so to speak the primacy but also over the seeds of animals As to these rites, I am unwilling to undertake to show to what excess of turpitude they had reached, because that would entail a lengthened discourse, though I am not unwilling to do so as a demonstration of the proud stupidity of those who practised them. Among other rites which I am compelled from the greatness of their number to omit, Varro says that in Italy, at the places where roads crossed each other, the rites of Liber were celebrated with such unrestrained turpitude that the private parts of a man were worshipped in his honor nor was this abomination transacted in secret that some regard at least might be paid to modesty but was openly and wantonly displayed for during the festival of liber this obscene member placed on a car was carried with great honour first over the cross-roads in the country and then into the city but in the town of lavinium a whole month was devoted to liber alone during the days of which all the people gave themselves up to the most dissolute conversation until that member had been carried through the forum and brought to rest in its own place on which unseemly member it was necessary that the most honourable matron should place a wreath in the presence of all the people thus forsooth was the god liber to be appeased in order to the growth of seeds Thus was enchantment to be driven away from fields, even by a matron's being compelled to do in public what not even a harlot ought to be permitted to do in a theatre, if there were matrons among the spectators. For these reasons, then, Saturn alone was not believed to be sufficient for seeds, namely that the impure mind might find occasions for multiplying the gods, and that, being righteously abandoned to uncleanness by the one true God, and being prostituted to the worship of many false gods to an avidity for ever greater and greater uncleanness, it should call these sacri- religious rites sacred things, and should abandon itself to be violated and polluted by crowds of foul demons. Chapter twenty two. Now Neptune had Cilicia to wife, who they say is the nether waters of the sea. Wherefore was Venilia also joined to him. Was it not simply through the lust of the soul desiring a greater number of demons to whom to prostitute itself, and not because this goddess was necessary to the perfection of their sacred rites? But let the interpretation of this illustrious theology be brought forward to restrain us from this censuring by rendering a satisfactory reason. Vanillia, says this theology, is the wave which comes to the shore, Salacia the wave which returns into the sea why then are there two goddesses when it is one wave which comes and returns certainly it is mad lust itself which in its eagerness for many deities resembles the waves which break on the shore for though the water which goes is not different from that which returns still the soul which goes and returns not is defiled by two demons whom it has taken occasion by this false pretext to invite I ask thee, O Varro, and you who have read such works of learned men, and think ye have learned something great, I ask you to interpret this, I do not say in a manner consistent with the eternal and unchangeable nature which alone is God, but only in a manner consistent with a doctrine concerning the soul of the world and its parts which ye think to be the true gods. It is a somewhat more tolerable thing that ye have made that part of the soul of the world which pervades the sea, your god Neptune.' Is the wave, then, which comes to the shore and returns to the main, two parts of the world, or two parts of the soul of the world? Who of you is so silly as to think so? Why, then, have they made to you two goddesses? The only reason seems to be that your wise ancestors have provided, not that many gods should rule you, but that many of such demons as are delighted with those vanities and falsehoods should possess you. But why has that Salacia, according to this interpretation, lost to the lower part of the sea, seeing that she was represented as subject to her husband? For in saying that she is the receding wave, ye have put her on the surface. Was she enraged at her husband for taking Venilia as a concubine, and thus drove him from the upper part of the sea? CHAPTER twenty-three. Surely the earth, which we see full of its own living creatures, is one, but for all that it is but a mighty mass among the elements in the lowest part of the world.' Why, then, would they have it to be a goddess? Is it because it is fruitful? Why, then, are not men rather held to be gods, who render it fruitful by cultivating it? But though they plough it, do not adore it? But, they say, the part of the soul of the world which pervades it makes it a goddess. As if it were not a far more evident thing, nay, a thing which is not called in question, that there is a soul in man.' And yet men are not held to be gods, but, a thing to be sadly lamented, with wonderful and pitiful delusion, are subjected to those who are not gods, and then whom they themselves are better, as the objects of deserved worship and adoration. And certainly the same Varro, in the book concerning the select gods, affirms that there are three grades of soul in universal nature. One which pervades all the living parts of the body, and has not sensation, but only the power of life, that principle which penetrates into the bones, nails, and hair. By this principle in the world trees are nourished, and grow without being possessed of sensation, and live in a manner peculiar to themselves. The second grade of soul is that in which there is sensation. This principle penetrates into the eyes, ears, nostrils, mouth, and the organs of sensation. The third grade of soul is the highest, and is called mind, where intelligence has its throne. This grade of soul no mortal creatures except man are possessed of. Now this part of the soul of the world, Varro says, is called God, and in us is called genius. And the stones and earth in the world which we see, and which are not pervaded by the power of sensation, are, as it were, the bones and nails of God. Again, the sun, moon, and stars which we perceive, and by which he perceives, are his organs of perception. Moreover, the ether is his mind, and by the virtue which is in it, which penetrates into the stars, it also makes them gods. And because it penetrates through them into the earth, it makes it the goddess Tellus. Whence again it enters and permeates the sea and ocean, making them the god Neptune." Let him return from this, which he thinks to be natural theology, back to that from which he went out, in order to rest from the fatigue occasioned by the many turnings and windings of his path. Let him return, I say, let him return to the civil theology. I wish to detain him there a while. I have somewhat to say which has to do with that theology.' I am not yet saying that if the earth and stones are similar to our bones and nails, they are in like manner devoid of intelligence as they are devoid of sensation. Nor am I saying that if our bones and nails are said to have intelligence, because they are in a man who has intelligence, he who says that the things analogous to these in the world are God's is as stupid as he is who says that our bones and nails are men. We shall perhaps have occasion to dispute these things with the philosophers. At present, however, I wish to deal with Varro as a political theologian, for it is possible that though he may seem to have wished to lift up his head, as it were, into the liberty of natural theology, the consciousness that the book with which he was occupied was one concerning a subject belonging to civil theology, may have caused him to relapse into the point of view of that theology, and to say this in order that the ancestors of his nation and other states might not be believed to have bestowed on Neptune an irrational worship.' What I am to say is this. Since the earth is one, why has not that part of the soul of the world which permeates the earth made it that one goddess which he calls Tellus? But had it done so, what then had become of Orcus, the brother of Jupiter and Neptune, whom they call Father Dis? And where, in that case, had been his wife Proserpine, who, according to another opinion given in the same book, is called not the fecundity of the earth, but its lower part? But if they say that part of the soul of the world, when it permeates the upper part of the earth, makes the god Father Dis, but when it pervades the nether part of the same, the goddess Proserpine, what in that case will that Telus be? For all that which she was has been divided into these two parts and these two gods, so that it is impossible to find what to make or where to place her as a third goddess, except it be said that those divinities Orcus and Proserpine are the one goddess Tellus, and that they are not three gods, but one or two, whilst notwithstanding they are called three, held to be three, worshipped as three, having their own several altars, their own shrines, rites, images, priests, whilst their own false demons also through these things defile the prostituted soul.' Let this further question be answered. What part of the earth does a part of the soul of the world permeate in order to make the god Telumo? No, says he, but the earth, being one and the same, has a double life, the masculine which produces seed, and the feminine which receives and nourishes the seed. Hence it has been called Telus from the feminine principle, and Telumo from the masculine. Why then do the priests, as he indicates, perform divine service to four gods, two others being added, namely to Telus, Telumo, Altor, and Rusor? We have already spoken concerning Tellus and telumo But why do they worship Altor? Because, says he, all that springs of the earth is nourished by the earth. Wherefore do they worship Rusor? Because all things return back again to the place whence they proceeded. Chapter twenty four The one earth then, on account of this fourfold virtue, ought to have had four surnames, but not to have been considered as four gods as jupiter and juno though they have so many surnames are for all that only single deities for by all these surnames it is signified that a manifold virtue belongs to one god or to one goddess but the multitude of surnames does not imply a multitude of gods but as sometimes even the vilest women themselves grow tired of those crowds which they have sought after under the impulse of wicked passion, so also the soul, become vile and prostituted to impure spirits, sometimes begins to loathe the multiply to itself gods to whom to surrender itself to be polluted by them, as much as it once delighted in so doing. For Varro himself, as if ashamed of that crowd of gods, would make Tellus to be one goddess— They say, says he, that whereas the one great mother has a tympanum, it is signified that she is the orb of the earth, whereas she has towers on her head, towns are signified, and whereas seats are fixed round about her, it is signified that whilst all things move, she moves not. And their having made the gali to serve this goddess signifies that they who are in need of seed ought to follow the earth, for in it all seeds are found. By their throwing themselves down before her, it is taught, he says, that they who cultivate the earth should not sit idle, for there is always something for them to do. The sound of the cymbals signifies the noise made by the throwing of iron utensils, and by men's hands, and all other noises connected with agricultural operations. And these symbols are of brass, because the ancients used brazen utensils in their agriculture before iron was discovered. They place beside the goddess an unbound and tame lion, to show that there is no kind of land so wild and so excessively barren, as that it would be profitless to attempt to bring it in and cultivate it. Then he adds that because they gave many names and surnames to mother Tellus, it came to be thought that these signified many gods. They think, says he, that Tellus is ops because the earth is improved by labour, mother because it brings forth much, great because it brings forth seed, proserpine because fruits creep forth from it, vesta because it is invested with herbs. And thus, says he, they not at all absurdly identify other goddesses with the earth. If, then, it is one goddess, though, if the truth were consulted, it is not even that, why do they nevertheless separate it into many? Let there be many names of one goddess, and let there not be as many goddesses as there are names. But the authority of the erring ancients weighs heavily on Varro, and compels him, after having expressed this opinion, to show signs of uneasiness. For he immediately adds, With which things the opinion of the ancients, who thought that there were really many goddesses, does not conflict. How does it not conflict, when it is entirely a different thing to say that one goddess has many names, and to say that there are many goddesses? But it is possible, he says, that the same thing may both be one, and yet have in it a plurality of things. I grant that there are many things in one man. Are there therefore in him many men? In like manner, in one goddess there are many things. Are there therefore also many goddesses? But let them divide, unite, multiply, reduplicate, and implicate as they like.' these are the famous mysteries of Tellus and the great mother all of which are shown to have reference to mortal seeds and to agriculture do these things then namely the tipanum, the towers the galli the tossing to and fro of limbs the noise of cymbals the images of lions do these things having this reference and this end promise eternal life Do the mutilated galli then, serve this great mother in order to signify that they who are in need of seed should follow the earth, as though it were not rather the case that this very service caused them to want seed? For what do they, by following this goddess, acquire seed, being in want of it, or by following her lose seed when they have it? Is this to interpret, or to deprecate? nor is it considered to what a degree malign demons have gained the upper hand inasmuch as they have been able to exact such cruel rights without having dared to promise any great things in return for them had the earth not been a goddess men would have by labouring laid their hands on it in order to obtain seed through it and would not have laid violent hands on themselves in order to lose seed on account of it Had it not been a goddess, it would have become so fertile by the hands of others, that it would not have compelled a man to be rendered barren by his own hands. Nor that in the festival of Liber an honourable matron put a wreath on the private parts of a man in the sight of the multitude, where perhaps her husband was standing by blushing and perspiring, if there is any shame left in men, and that in the celebration of marriages the newly married bride was ordered to sit upon Priapus. These things are bad enough, but they are small and contemptible, in comparison with that most cruel abomination, or most abominable cruelty, by which either set is so deluded that neither perishes of its wound. There the enchantment of fields is feared, here the amputation of members is not feared. There the modesty of the bride is outraged, but in such a manner as that neither her fruitfulness nor even her virginity is taken away. Here a man is so mutilated that he is neither changed into a woman, nor remains a man.' CHAPTER Twenty Five, Varro has not spoken of that Attis, nor sought out any interpretation for him, in memory of whose being loved by Ceres the Gallus is mutilated. But the learned and wise Greeks have by no means been silent about an interpretation so holy and so illustrious. The celebrated philosopher Porphyry has said that the Attis signifies the flowers of spring, which is the most beautiful season, and therefore was mutilated because the flower falls before the fruit appears. They have not then compared the man himself, or rather that semblance of a man they called Attis to the flower, but his male organs. These, indeed, fell whilst he was living. Uh, Did I say fell? Nay, truly, they did not fall, nor were they plucked off, but torn away. Nor when that flower was lost did any fruit follow, but rather sterility. What, then, do they say is signified by the castrated Attis himself, and whatever remained to him after his castration? To what do they refer that? What interpretation does that give rise to? do they, after vain endeavours to discover an interpretation, seek to persuade men that that is rather to be believed which report has been made public, and which also has been written concerning his having been a mutilated man? Arvarov has very properly opposed this, and has been unwilling to state it, for it certainly was not unknown to that most learned man. CHAPTER Twenty Six. Concerning the effeminates consecrated to the same great mother, in defiance of all the modesty which belongs to men and women, Varro has not wished to say anything, nor do I remember to have read anywhere aught concerning them. These effeminates, no later than yesterday, were going through the streets and places of Carthage with anointed hair, whitened faces, relaxed bodies, and feminine gait, exacting from the people the means of maintaining their ignominious lives. Nothing has been said concerning them." interpretation failed reason blushed speech was silent the great mother has surpassed all her sons not in greatness of deity but of crime to this monster not even the monstrosity of janus is to be compared his deformity was only in his image hers was the deformity of cruelty in her sacred rites he has a redundancy of members in stone images she inflicts the loss of members on men this abomination is not surpassed by the licentious deeds of jupiter so many and so great he with all his seductions of women only disgraced heaven with one ganymede she with so many avowed and public effeminates as both defiled the earth and outraged heaven perhaps we may either compare saturn to this mania mater or even set him before her in this kind of abominable cruelty for he mutilated his father but at the festivals of saturn men could rather be slain by the hands of others than mutilated by their own he devoured his sons as the poets say and the natural theologists interpret this as they list history says he slew them but the romans have never received like the carthaginians the custom of sacrificing their sons to him this great mother of the gods however has brought mutilated men into roman temples and has preserved that cruel custom being believed to promote the strength of the romans by emasculating their men Compared with this evil, what are the thefts of Mercury, the wantonness of Venus, and the base and flagitious deeds of the rest of them, which we might bring forward from books, were it not that they are daily sung and danced in the theatres? But what are those things to so great an evil, an evil whose magnitude was only proportioned to the greatness of the great mother, especially as these are said to have been invented by the poets, as if the poets had also invented this, that they are acceptable to the gods?' let it be imputed then to the audacity and impudence of the poets that these things have been sung and written of but that they have been incorporated into the body of divine rights and honours the deities themselves demanding and extorting that incorporation what is that but the crime of the gods nay more the confession of demons and the deception of wretched men But as to this, that the great mother is considered to be worshipped in the appropriate form when she is worshipped by the consecration of mutilated men, this is not an invention of the poets, nay, they have rather shrunk from it with horror than sung of it. Want any one, then, to be consecrated to these select gods, that he may live blessedly after death, consecrated to whom he could not live decently before death, being subjected to such foul superstitions, and bound over to unclean demons? But all these things, said Faro, are to be referred to the world.' let him consider, if it be not rather, to the unclean. But why not refer that to the world which is demonstrated to be in the world? We, however, seek for a mind which, trusting to true religion, does not adore the world as its God, but for the sake of God praises the world as a work of God, and purified from mundane defilements, comes pure to God himself who founded the world. CHAPTER Twenty Seven. We see that these select gods have indeed become more famous than the rest, not, however, that their merits may be brought to light, but that their opprobrious deeds may not be hid. Whence it is more credible that they were men, as not only poetic, but also historical literature has handed down. For this which Virgil says, Then from Olympus heights came down good Saturn, exiled from his throne by Jove, his mightier heir and what follows with reference to this affair is fully related by the historian euhemerus and has been translated into latin by ennios and as they have written before us in the greek or in the latin tongue against such errors as these have said much concerning this matter i have thought it unnecessary to dwell upon it When I consider those physical reasons, then, by which learned and acute men attempt to turn human things into divine things, all I see is that they have been able to refer these things only to temporal works, and to that which has a corporeal nature, and even though invisible, still mutable, and this is by no means the true God but if this worship had been performed as the symbolism of ideas at least congruous with the religion though it would indeed have been cause of grief that the true god was not announced and proclaimed by its symbolism nevertheless it could have been in some degree borne with when it did not occasion and command the performance of such foul and abominable things but since it is impiety to worship the body or the soul for the true god by whose indwelling alone the soul is happy how much more impious is it to worship those things through which neither soul nor body can obtain either salvation or human honour wherefore if with temple priest and sacrifice which are due to the true god any element of the world be worshipped or any created spirit even though not impure and evil that worship is still evil not because the things are evil by which the worship is performed but because those things ought only to be used in the worship of him to whom alone such worship and service are due But if any one insists that he worships the one true God, that is, the creator of every soul and of every body, with stupid and monstrous idols, with human victims, with putting a wreath on the male organ, with the wages of unchastity, with the cutting of limbs, with emasculation, with the consecration of effeminates, with impure and obscene plays, such a one does not sin because he worships one who ought not to be worshipped, but because he worships him who ought to be worshipped in a way in which he ought not to be worshipped. But he who worships with such things, that is, foul and obscene things, and that not the true God, namely the maker of soul and body, but a creature, even though not a wicked creature, whether it be soul or body, or soul and body together, twice sins against God, because he both worships for God what is not God, and also worships with such things as neither God nor what is not God ought to be worshipped with it is indeed manifest how these pagans worship that is how shamefully and criminally they worship but what or whom they worship would have been left in obscurity had not their history testified that those same confessedly base and foul rites were rendered in obedience to the demands of the gods who exacted them with terrible severity Wherefore it is evident beyond doubt that this whole civil theology is occupied in inventing means for attracting wicked and most impure spirits, inviting them to visit senseless images, and through these to take possession of stupid hearts. Chapter twenty eight To what purpose, then, is it, that this most learned and most acute man Varro attempts, as it were, with subtle disputation, to reduce and refer all these gods to heaven and earth? He cannot do it. They go out of his hands like water, they shrink back, they slip down and fall. For when about to speak of the females, that is, the goddesses, he says, Since, as I observed in the first book concerning places, heaven and earth are the two origins of the gods, on which account they are called celestials and terrestrials, and as I began in the former books with heaven, speaking of Janus, whom some have said to be heaven, and others the earth, so I now commence with Tellus in speaking concerning the goddesses. I can understand what embarrassment so great a mind was experiencing, for he is influenced by the perception of a certain plausible resemblance when he says that the heaven is that which does, and the earth that which suffers, and therefore attributes the masculine principle to the one, and the feminine to the other, not considering that it is rather he who made both heaven and earth who is the maker of both activity and passivity.' On this principle he interprets the celebrated mysteries of the Samothracians, and promises with an air of great devoutness that he will by writing expound these mysteries, which have not been so much as known to his countrymen, and will send them his exposition. Then he says that he had from many proofs gathered that in those mysteries, among the images, one signifies heaven, another the earth, another the patterns of things, which Plato calls ideas. He makes Jupiter to signify heaven, Juno the earth, Minerva the ideas. Heaven, by which anything is made the earth from which it is made and the pattern according to which it is made but with respect to the last i am forgetting to say that plato attributed so great an importance to these ideas as to say not that anything was made by heaven according to them but that according to them heaven itself was made To return, however, it is to be observed that Varro has, in the book on the select gods, lost that theory of these gods, in whom he has, as it were, embraced all things. For he assigns the male gods to heaven, the females to earth, among which latter he has placed Minerva, whom he had before placed above heaven itself. Then the male god Neptune is in the sea, which pertains rather to earth than to heaven last of all father dis who is called in greek pluton another male god brother of both jupiter and neptune is also held to be a god of the earth holding the upper region of the earth himself and allotting the nether region to his wife proserpine how then do they attempt to refer the gods to heaven and the goddesses to earth what solidity what consistency what sobriety has this disputation but that Telus is the origin of the goddesses, the great mother to wit, beside whom there is continually the noise of the mad and abominable reverie of effeminates and mutilated men, and men who cut themselves and indulge in frantic gesticulations. How is it, then, that Janus is called the head of the gods, and Tellus the head of the goddesses? In the one case error does not make one head, and in the other frenzy does not make a sane one. Why do they vainly attempt to refer these to the world?' Even if they could do so, no pious person worships the world for the true God. Nevertheless, plain truth makes it evident that they are not able even to do this. Let them rather identify them with dead men and most wicked demons, and no further question will remain. CHAPTER Twenty Nine for all those things which according to the account given of those gods are referred to the world by so-called physical interpretation may without any religious scruple be rather assigned to the true god who made heaven and earth and created every soul and every body and the following is the manner in which we see that this may be done We worship God, not heaven and earth, of which two parts this world consists, nor the soul or souls diffused through all living things, but God, who made heaven and earth, and all things which are in them, who made every soul, whatever be the nature of its life, whether it have life without sensation and reason, or life with sensation, or life with both sensation and reason. CHAPTER Thirty. And now to begin to go over those works of the one true God, on account of which these have made to themselves many and false gods, whilst they attempt to give an honourable interpretation to their many most abominable and most infamous mysteries, we worship that God who has appointed to the natures, created by him, both the beginnings and the end of their existing and moving, who holds, knows, and disposes the causes of things, who hath created the virtue of seeds, who hath given to what creatures he would a rational soul, which is called mind, who hath bestowed the faculty in use of speech who hath imparted the gift of foretelling future things to whatever spirits it seemed to him good who also himself predicts future things through whom he pleases and through whom he will removes diseases Who, when the human race is to be corrected and chastised by wars, regulates also the beginnings, progress, and ends of these wars, who hath created and governs the most vehement and most violent fire of this world, in due relation and proportion to the other elements of immense nature, who is the governor of all the waters, who hath made the sun brightest of all material lights, and hath given him suitable power and motion, who hath not withdrawn even from the inhabitants of the nether world his dominion and power who hath appointed to mortal natures their suitable seed and nourishment dry or liquid who establishes and makes fruitful the earth who bestows bountifully its fruits on animals and on men who knows and ordains not only principal causes but also subsequent causes who hath determined for the moon her motion who affords ways in heaven and on earth for passage from one place to another who hath granted also to human minds which he hath created not the knowledge of the various arts for the help of life and nature who hath appointed the union of male and female for the propagation of offspring who hath favoured the societies of men with the gift of terrestrial fire, for the simplest and most familiar purposes, to burn on the hearth and to give light. These are, then, the things which that most acute and most learned man Varro has laboured to distribute among the select gods, by know not what physical interpretation, which he has got from other sources, and also conjectured for himself. But these things the one true God makes and does, but as the same God, that is, as he who is holy everywhere, included in no space, bound by no chains, mutable in no part of his being, filling heaven and earth with omnipresent power, not with a needy nature.' Therefore he governs all things in such a manner as to allow them to perform and exercise their own proper movements. For although they can be nothing without him, they are not what he is. He does also many things through angels, but only from himself does he beatify angels. So also, though he sent angels to men for certain purposes, he does not for all that beatify men by the good inherent in the angels, but by himself, as he does the angels themselves. CHAPTER thirty-one for besides such benefits as according to this administration of nature of which we have made some mention he lavishes on good and bad alike we have from him a great manifestation of great love which belongs only to the good For although we can never sufficiently give thanks to him, that we are, that we live, that we behold heaven and earth, that we have mind and reason by which to seek after him who made all these things, nevertheless, what hearts, what number of tongues shall affirm that they are sufficient to render thanks to him for this, that he hath not wholly departed from us, laden and overwhelmed with sins, averse to the contemplation of his light, and blinded by the love of darkness, that is, of iniquity, but hath sent to us his own word, who is his only son, that by his birth and suffering for us in the flesh, which he assumed, we might know how much God valued man, and that by that unique sacrifice we might be purified from all our sins, and that, love being shed abroad in our hearts by his Spirit, we might, having surmounted all difficulties, come into eternal rest, and the ineffable sweetness of the contemplation of himself. Chapter thirty two This mystery of eternal life, even from the beginning of the human race, was, by certain signs and sacraments suitable to the times, announced through angels to those to whom it was meet. Then the Hebrew people was congregated into one republic, as it were, to perform this mystery, and in that republic was foretold, sometimes through men who understood what they spake, and sometimes through men who understood not, all that had transpired since the advent of Christ until now, and all that will transpire. This same nation, too, was afterwards dispersed through the nations in order to testify to the Scriptures in which eternal salvation in Christ had been declared. For not only the prophecies which are contained in words, nor only the precepts for the right conduct of life, which teach morals and piety, and are contained in the sacred writings, not only these, but also the rites, priesthood, tabernacle or temple, altars, sacrifices, ceremonies, and whatever else belongs to that service which is due to God, and which in Greek is properly called litreia. All these signified and foreannounced those things which we who believe in Jesus Christ and eternal life believe to have been fulfilled, or behold in process of fulfillment, or confidently believe shall yet be fulfilled. CHAPTER thirty three This the only true religion has alone been able to manifest that the gods of the nations are most impure demons, who desire to be thought gods, availing themselves of the names of certain defunct souls, or the appearance of mundane creatures, and with proud impurity rejoicing in things most base and infamous, as though in divine honours, and envying human souls their conversion to the true God. From whose most cruel and most impious dominion a man is liberated when he believes on him who is afforded an example of humility, following which men may rise as great as was that pride by which they fell. Hence are not only those gods, concerning whom we have already spoken much, and many others belonging to different nations and lands, but also those of whom we are now treating, who have been selected, as it were, into the senate of the gods, selected, however, on account of the notoriousness of their crimes, not on account of the dignity of their virtues, whose sacred things Varro attempts to refer to certain natural reasons, seeking to make base things honourable, but cannot find how to square and agree with these reasons, because these are not the causes of those rights which he thinks thinks, or rather wishes, to be thought to be so. For had not only these, but also all others of this kind been real causes, even though they had nothing to do with the true God and eternal life, which is to be sought in religion, they would, by affording some sort of reason drawn from the nature of things, have mitigated in some degree that offence which was occasioned by some turpitude or absurdity in the sacred rites which was not understood.' This he attempted to do in respect to certain fables of the theatres, or mysteries of the shrines, but he did not acquit the theatres of likeness to the shrines, but rather condemned the shrines for likeness to the theatres. However, he in some way made the attempt to soothe the feelings shocked by horrible things, by rendering what he would have to be natural interpretations. CHAPTER Thirty Four. But, on the other hand, we find, as the same most learned man has related, that the causes of the sacred rites which were given from the books of Numa Pompilius could by no means be tolerated, and were considered unworthy, not only to become known to the religious by being read, but even to lie written in the darkness in which they had been concealed. For now let me say what I promised in the third book of this work to say in its proper place. For as we read in the same Varro's book on the worship of the gods, a certain one terentius had a field at the geniculum and once when his ploughman was passing the plough near to the tomb of numa pompilius he turned up from the ground the books of numa in which were written the causes of the sacred institutions which books he carried to the praetor who having read the beginnings of them referred to the senate what seemed to be a matter of so much importance and when the chief senators had read certain of the causes why this or that rite was instituted the senate assented to the dead numa and the conscript fathers as though concerned for the interests of religion ordered the praetor to burn the books Let each one believe what he thinks, nay, let every champion of such impiety say whatever mad contention may suggest. For my part, let it suffice to suggest that the causes of those sacred things which were written down by King Numa Pompilius, the institutor of the Roman rites, ought never to have become known to people or senate, or even to the priests themselves, and also that Numa himself attained to these secrets of demons by an illicit curiosity, in order that he might write them down, so as to be able by reading to be reminded of them however though he was king and had no cause to be afraid of any one he neither dared to teach them to any one nor to destroy them by obliteration or any other form of destruction therefore because he was unwilling that any one should know them lest men should be taught infamous things and because he was afraid to violate them lest he should enrage the demons against himself he buried them in what he thought a safe place believing that a plough could not approach his sepulchre But the Senate, fearing to condemn the religious solemnities of their ancestors, and therefore compelled to assent to Numa, were nevertheless so convinced that those books were pernicious, that they did not order them to be buried again, knowing that human curiosity would thereby be excited to seek with far greater eagerness after the matter already divulged, but ordered the scandalous relics to be destroyed with fire. Because, as they thought it was now a necessity to perform those sacred rites, they judged that the error arising from ignorance of their causes was more tolerable than the disturbed which the knowledge of them would occasion the state chapter thirty five for numa himself also to whom no prophet of god no holy angel was sent was driven to have recourse to hydromancy that he might see the images of the gods in the water or rather appearances whereby the demons made sport of him and might learn from them what he ought to ordain and observe in the sacred rites this kind of divination says varro was introduced by the persians and was used by numa himself and at an after-time by the philosopher pythagoras in this divination he says they also inquire at the inhabitants of the nether world and make use of blood and this the greeks call necromantheion but whether it be called necromancy or hydromancy it is the same thing for in either case the dead are supposed to foretell future things But by what artifices these things are done, let themselves consider, for I am unwilling to say that these artifices were wont to be prohibited by the laws, and to be very severely punished even in the Gentile states, before the advent of our Saviour. I am unwilling, I say, to affirm this, for perhaps even such things were then allowed. However, it was by these arts that Pompilius learned those sacred rites which he gave forth as facts, whilst he concealed their causes, for even he himself was afraid of that which he had learned." the senate also caused the books in which those causes were recorded to be burned what is it then to me that varro attempts to adduce all sorts of fanciful physical interpretations which if these books had contained they would certainly not have been burned for otherwise the conscript fathers would also have burned those books which varro published and dedicated to the high priest caesar now numa is said to have married the nymph geria because as varro explains it in the aforementioned book he carried forth water wherewith to perform his hydromancy Thus facts are wont to be converted into fables through false colourings. It was by that hydromancy, then, that that over-curious Roman king learned both the sacred rites which were to be written in the books of the priests, and also the causes of those rites, which latter, however, he was unwilling that any one besides himself should know. Wherefore he made these causes, as it were, to die along with himself, taking care to have them written by themselves, and removed from the knowledge of men by being buried in the earth. Wherefore, the things which are written in those books were either abominations of demons, so foul and noxious, as to render that whole civil theology execrable, even in the eyes of such men as those senators, who had accepted so many shameful things in the sacred rites themselves, or they were nothing else than the accounts of dead men, whom, through the lapse of ages, almost all the Gentile nations had come to believe to be immortal gods, whilst those same demons were delighted even with such rites, having presented themselves to receive worship under pretense of being those very dead men whom they had caused to be thought immortal gods by certain fallacious miracles, performed in order to establish that belief. But by the hidden providence of the true God, these demons were permitted to confess these things to their friend Numa, having been gained by those arts through which necromancy could be performed, and yet were not constrained to admonish him rather at his death to burn than to bury the books in which they were written." But in order that these books might be unknown the demons could not resist the plough by which they were thrown up or the pen of varro through which the things that were done in reference to this matter have come down even to our knowledge for they are not able to effect anything which they are not allowed but they are permitted to influence those whom god in his deep and just judgment according to their deserts gives over either to be simply afflicted by them or to be also subdued and deceived But how pernicious these writings were judged to be, or how alien from the worship of the true divinity, may be understood from the fact that the senate preferred to burn what Pompilius had hid, rather than to fear what he feared, so that he could not dare to do that. Wherefore let him who does not desire to live a pious life even now seek eternal life by means of such rites. But let him who does not wish to have fellowship with malign demons have no fear for the noxious superstition wherewith they are worshipped, but let him recognise the true religion by which they are unmasked and vanquished. End of book seven, chapters eighteen through thirty five. Recording by Darren L. Slider, Fort Worth, Texas, www.logoslibrary.org Book Eight, Chapters one through fourteen of The City of God This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit librivox dot Recording by Darren l Slider, www.logoslibrary.org. dot org. The City of God by saint Augustine of Hippo, Book Eight, Chapter one We shall require to apply our mind with far greater intensity to the present question than was requisite in the solution and unfolding of the questions handled in the preceding books, for it is not with ordinary men but with philosophers that we must confer concerning the theology which they call natural for it is not like the fabulous, that is, the theatrical, nor the civil, that is, the urban theology, the one of which displays the crimes of the gods, whilst the other manifests their criminal desires, which demonstrate them to be rather malign demons than gods. It is, we say with philosophers, we have to confer with respect to this theology, men whose very name, if rendered into Latin, signifies those who profess the love of wisdom. Now if wisdom is God, who made all things, as is attested by the divine authority and truth, then the philosopher is a lover of God. But since the thing itself which is called by this name exists not in all who glory in the name, for it does not follow, of course, that all who are called philosophers are lovers of true wisdom, we must need select from the number of those with whose opinions we have been able to acquaint ourselves by reading, some with whom we may not unworthily engage in the treatment of this question. For I have not in this work undertaken to refute all the vain opinions of the philosophers, but only such as pertain to theology, which Greek word we understand to mean an account or explanation of the divine nature nor, again, have I undertaken to refute all the vain theological opinions of all the philosophers, but only of such of them as, agreeing in the belief that there is a divine nature, and that this divine nature is concerned about human affairs, do nevertheless deny that the worship of the one unchangeable God is sufficient for the obtaining of a blessed life after death, as well as at the present time, and hold that in order to obtain that life, many gods, created indeed, and appointed to their several spheres by that one God, are to be worshipped i these approach nearer to the truth than even Varro, for whilst he saw no difficulty in extending natural theology in its entirety even to the world and the soul of the world, these acknowledge God as existing above all that is of the nature of soul, and as the creator not only of this visible world, which is often called heaven and earth, but also of every soul whatsoever, and as him who gives blessedness to the rational soul, of which kind is the human soul, by participation in his own unchangeable and incorporeal light." There is no one who has even a slender knowledge of these things who does not know of the Platonic philosophers who derive their name from their master Plato. Concerning this Plato, then, I will briefly state such things as I deem necessary to the present question, mentioning beforehand those who preceded him in time in the same department of literature. CHAPTER Two. As far as concerns the literature of the greeks whose language holds a more illustrious place than any of the languages of the other nations history mentions two schools of philosophers the one called the italic school originating in that part of italy which was formerly called magna grecia the other called the ionic school having its origin in those regions which are still called by the name of greece the italic school had for its founder pythagoras of samos to whom also the term philosophy is said to owe its origin for whereas formerly those who seemed to excel others by the laudable manner in which they regulated their lives were called sages pythagoras on being asked what he professed replied that he was a philosopher that is a student or lover of wisdom for it seemed to him to be the height of arrogance to profess oneself a sage The founder of the Ionic school, again, was Thales of Miletus, one of those seven who were styled the seven sages, of whom six were distinguished by the kind of life they lived, and by certain maxims which they gave forth for the proper conduct of life. Thales was distinguished as an investigator into the nature of things, and in order that he might have successors in his school, he committed his dissertations to writing. That, however, which especially rendered him eminent was his ability, by means of astronomical calculations, even to predict eclipses of the sun and moon. He thought, however, that water was the first principle of things, and that of it all the elements of the world, the world itself, and all things which are generated in it, ultimately consist. Over all this work, however, which, when we consider the world, appears so admirable, he set nothing of the nature of divine mind. To him succeeded Anaximander, his pupil, who held a different opinion concerning the nature of things, for he did not hold that all things spring from one principle, as Thales did, who held that principle to be water, but thought that each thing springs from its own proper principle. These principles of things he believed to be infinite in number, and thought that they generated innumerable worlds, and all the things which arise in them. He thought also that these worlds are subject to a perpetual process of alternate dissolution and regeneration, each one continuing for a longer or shorter period of time, according to the nature of the case. Nor did he, any more than Thales, attribute anything to a divine mind in the production of all this activity of things. Anaximeter left as his successor his disciple Anaximenes, who attributed all the causes of things to an infinite heir. He neither denied nor ignored the existence of gods, but so far from believing that the air was made by them, he held, on the contrary, that they sprang from the air. Anaxagoras, however, who was his pupil, perceived that a divine mind was the productive cause of all things which we see, and said that all the various kinds of things, according to their several modes and species, were produced out of an infinite matter consisting of homogeneous particles, but by the efficiency of a divine mind. Diogenes also, another pupil of Anaximenes, said that a certain air was the original substance of things out of which all things were produced, but that it was possessed of a divine reason without which nothing could be produced from it. And Exagoras was succeeded by his disciple Archelaus, who also thought that all things consisted of homogeneous particles, of which each particular thing was made, but that those particles were pervaded by a divine mind, which perpetually energized all the eternal bodies, namely those particles, so that they are alternately united and separated. Socrates, the master of Plato, is said to have been the disciple of Archelaus, and on Plato's account it is that I have given this brief historical sketch of the whole history of these schools. CHAPTER three: Socrates is said to have been the first who directed the entire effort of philosophy to the correction and regulation of manners, all who went before him having expended their greatest efforts in the investigation of physical, that is, natural, phenomena. However, it seems to me that it cannot be certainly discovered whether Socrates did this because he was wearied of obscure and uncertain things, and so wished to direct his mind to the discovery of something manifest and certain, which was necessary in order to the obtaining of a blessed life, that one great object toward which the labour, vigilance, and industry of all philosophers seem to have been directed, or whether, as some yet more favourable to him suppose, he did it because he was unwilling that minds defiled with earthly desires should essay to raise themselves upward to divine things for he saw that the causes of things were sought for by them which causes he believed to be ultimately reducible to nothing else than the will of the one true and supreme god And on this account he thought they could only be comprehended by a purified mind, and therefore that all diligence ought to be given to the purification of the life by good morals, in order that the mind, delivered from the depressing weight of lusts, might raise itself upward by its native vigour to eternal things, and might, with purified understanding, contemplate that nature which is incorporeal and unchangeable light, where live the causes of all created natures it is evident however that he hunted out and pursued with a wonderful pleasantness of style and argument and with a most pointed and insinuating urbanity the foolishness of ignorant men who thought that they knew this or that sometimes confessing his own ignorance and sometimes dissimulating his knowledge even in those very moral questions to which he seems to have directed the whole force of his mind and hence there arose hostility against him which ended in his becoming calumniously impeached and condemned to death Afterwards, however, that very city of the Athenians, which had publicly condemned him, did publicly bewail him, the popular indignation having turned with such vehemence on his accusers, that one of them perished by the violence of the multitude, whilst the other only escaped a like punishment by voluntary and perpetual exile illustrious therefore both in his life and in his death socrates left very many disciples of his philosophy who vied with one another in desire for proficiency in handling those moral questions which concern the chief good summum bonum the possession of which can make a man blessed And because, in the disputations of Socrates, where he raises all manner of questions, makes assertions, and then demolishes them, it did not evidently appear what he held to be the chief good, every one took from these disputations what pleased him best, and every one placed the final good in whatever it appeared to himself to consist. Now that which is called the final good is that at which, when one has arrived, he is blessed. But so diverse were the opinions held by those followers of Socrates concerning this final good, that, a thing scarcely to be credited with respect to the followers of one master, some placed the chief good in pleasure, as Aristippus, others in virtue, as Antisthenes. Indeed, it were tedious to recount the various opinions of various disciples. CHAPTER Four but among the disciples of socrates plato was the one who shone with a glory which far excelled that of the others and who not unjustly eclipsed them all by birth an athenian of honourable parentage he far surpassed his fellow disciples in natural endowments of which he was possessed in a wonderful degree yet, deeming himself and the Socratic discipline far from sufficient for bringing philosophy to perfection, he travelled as extensively as he was able, going to every place famed for the cultivation of any science of which he can make himself master. Thus he learned from the Egyptians whatever they held and taught as important, and from Egypt, passing into those parts of Italy which were filled with the fame of the Pythagoreans, he mastered, with the greatest facility, and under the most eminent teachers, all the Italic philosophy which was then in vogue. And as he had a peculiar love for his master Socrates, he made him the speaker in all his dialogues, putting into his mouth whatever he had learned, either from others or from the efforts of his own powerful intellect, tempering even his moral disputations with the grace and politeness of the Socratic style. And as the study of wisdom consists in action and contemplation, so that one part of it may be called active, the other contemplative, the active part having reference to the conduct of life, that is, to the regulation of morals, and the contemplative part to the investigation into the causes of nature, and into pure truth, Socrates is said to have excelled in the active part of that study, while Pythagoras gave more attention to its contemplative part, on which he brought to bear all the force of his great intellect. To Plato is given the praise of having perfected philosophy by combining both parts into one. He then divides it into three parts, the first moral, which is chiefly occupied with action, the second natural, of which the object is contemplation, and the third rational, which discriminates between the true and the false. And though this last is necessary both to action and contemplation, it is contemplation, nevertheless, which lays peculiar claim to the office of investigating the nature of truth. Thus this tripartite division is not contrary to that which made the study of wisdom to consist in action and contemplation now as to what plato thought with respect to each of these parts that is what he believed to be the end of all actions the cause of all natures and the light of all intelligences it would be a question too long to discuss and about which we ought not to make any rash affirmation for as plato liked and constantly affected the well-known method of his master socrates namely that of dissimulating his knowledge or his opinions it is not easy to discover clearly what he himself thought on various matters any more than it is to discover what were the real opinions of socrates We must nevertheless insert into our work certain of those opinions which he expresses in his writings, whether he himself uttered them, or narrates them as expressed by others, and seems himself to approve of, opinions sometimes favourable to the true religion, which our faith takes up and defends, and sometimes contrary to it, as, for example, in the questions concerning the existence of one God or of many, as it relates to the truly blessed life which is to be after death for those who are praised as having most closely followed plato who is justly preferred to all the other philosophers of the gentiles and who are said to have manifested the greatest acuteness in understanding him do perhaps entertain such an idea of god as to admit that in him are to be found the cause of existence the ultimate reason for the understanding and the end in reference to which the whole life is to be regulated of which three things the first is understood to pertain to the natural the second to the rational and the third to the moral part of philosophy for if man has been so created as to attain through that which is most excellent in him to that which excels all things that is to the one true and absolutely good god without whom no nature exists no doctrine instructs no exercise profits let him be sought, in whom all things are secure to us. Let him be discovered, in whom all truth becomes certain to us. Let him be loved, in whom all becomes right to us. CHAPTER Five. If, then, Plato defines the wise man as one who imitates, knows, loves this God, and who is rendered blessed through fellowship with him in his own blessedness, why discuss with the other philosophers? It is evident that none come nearer to us than the Platonists to them therefore let that fabulous theology give place which delights the minds of men with the crimes of the gods and that civil theology also in which impure demons under the name of gods have seduced the peoples of the earth given up to earthly pleasures desiring to be honoured by the errors of men and by filling the minds of their worshippers with impure desires exciting them to make the representation of their crimes one of the rites of their worship whilst they themselves found in the spectators of these exhibitions a most pleasing spectacle a theology in which whatever was honourable in the temple was defiled by its mixture with the obscenity of the theatre and whatever was base in the theatre was vindicated by the abominations of the temples to these philosophers also the interpretations of Varro must give place, in which he explains the sacred rites as having reference to heaven and earth, and to the seeds and operations of perishable things. For in the first place those rites have not the signification which he would have men believe is attached to them, and therefore truth does not follow him in his attempt so to interpret them. And even if they had this signification, still those things ought not to be worshipped by the rational soul as its god, which are placed below it in the scale of nature, nor ought the soul to prefer to itself as gods things to which the true god has given it the preference the same must be said of those writings pertaining to the sacred rites which numa pompilius took care to conceal by causing them to be buried along with himself in which when they were afterwards turned up by the plough were burned by order of the senate and to treat numa with all honour let us mention as belonging to the same rank as these writings that which alexander of macedon wrote to his mother as communicated to him by leo an egyptian high priest In this letter not only Picus and Faunus, and Aeneas and Romulus, or even Hercules, and Aesculapius and Liber, born of Semele, and the twin sons of Tendarius, or any other mortals who have been deified, but even the principal gods themselves, to whom Cicero, in his Tusculan questions, alludes without mentioning their names, Jupiter, Juno, Saturn, Vulcan, Vesta, and many others whom Varro attempts to identify with the parts or the elements of the world, are shown to have been men. There is, as we have said, a similarity between this case and that of Numa, for the priest, being afraid because he had revealed a mystery, earnestly begged of Alexander to command his mother to burn the letter which conveyed those communications to her. Let these two theologies, then, the fabulous and the civil, give place to the Platonic philosophers, who have recognized the true God as the author of all things, the source of the light of truth, and the bountiful bestower of all blessedness and not these only but to these great acknowledgers of so great a god those philosophers must yield who having their mind enslaved to their body suppose the principles of all things to be material as thales who held that the first principle of all things was water Anaximenes, that it was air, the Stoics, that it was fire, Epicurus, who affirmed that it consisted of atoms, that is to say, of minute corpuscules, and many others whom it is needless to enumerate, but who believed that bodies, simple or compound, animate or inanimate, but nevertheless bodies, were the cause and principle of all things. For some of them, as for instance the Epicureans, believed that living things could originate from things without life. Others held that all things living or without life spring from a living principle, but that nevertheless all things being material spring from a material principle. For the Stoics thought that fire, that is, one of the four material elements of which this visible world is composed, was both living and intelligent, the maker of the world and of all things contained in it, that it was in fact God these and others like them have only been able to suppose that which their hearts enslaved to sense have vainly suggested to them and yet they have within themselves something which they could not see they have represented to themselves inwardly things which they had seen without even when they were not seeing them but only thinking of them But this representation and thought is no longer a body, but only the similitude of a body. And that faculty of the mind by which this similitude of a body is seen is neither a body nor the similitude of a body. And the faculty which judges whether the representation is beautiful or ugly is without doubt superior to the object judged of. This principle is the understanding of man, the rational soul, and it is certainly not a body, since that similitude of a body which it beholds and judges of is itself not a body. The soul is neither earth, nor water, nor air, nor fire, of which four bodies, called the four elements, we see that this world is composed. And if the soul is not a body, how should God, its creator, be a body? Let all those philosophers then give place, as we have said, to the Platonists, and those also who have been ashamed to say that God is a body, but yet have thought that our souls are of the same nature as God. They have not been staggered by the great changeableness of the soul, an attribute which it would be impious to ascribe to the divine nature, but they say it is the body which changes the soul, for in itself it is unchangeable. As well might they say, flesh is wounded by some body, for in itself it is invulnerable. In a word, that which is unchangeable can be changed by nothing, so that that which can be changed by the body cannot properly be said to be immutable. CHAPTER six. These philosophers, then, whom we see not undeservedly exalted above the rest in fame and glory, have seen that no material body is God, and therefore they have transcended all bodies in seeking for God. They have seen that whatever is changeable is not the Most High God, and therefore they have transcended every soul and all changeable spirits in seeking the Supreme. They have seen also that in every changeable thing the form which makes it that which it is, whatever be its mode or nature, can only be through him who truly is, because he is unchangeable. And therefore, whether we consider the whole body of the world, its figure, qualities, and orderly movement, and also all the bodies which are in it, or whether we consider all life, either that which nourishes and maintains, as the life of trees, or that which, besides this, has also sensation, as the life of beasts, or that which adds to all these intelligence, as the life of man, or that which does not need the support of nutriment, but only maintains, feels, understands, as the life of angels, all can only be through him who absolutely, Is, For to him it is not one thing to be, and another to live, as though he could be, not living. Nor is it to him one thing to live, and another thing to understand, as though he could live, not understanding. Nor is it to him one thing to understand, another thing to be blessed, as though he could understand, and not be blessed. But to him to live, to understand, to be blessed, are to be. They have understood from this unchangeableness and this simplicity that all things must have been made by him, and that he could himself have been made by none. For they have considered that whatever is, is either body or life, and that life is something better than body, and that the nature of body is sensible, and that of life intelligible. Therefore they have preferred the intelligible nature to the sensible. We mean by sensible things such things as can be perceived by the sight and touch of the body, by intelligible things such as can be understood by the sight of the mind. For there is no corporeal beauty, whether in the condition of a body, as figure, or in its movement, as in music, of which it is not the mind that judges. But this could never have been, had there not existed in the mind itself a superior form of these things, without bulk, without noise of voice, without space and time. But even in respect of these things, had the mind not been mutable, it would not have been possible for one to judge better than another with regard to sensible forms. He who is clever judges better than he who is slow, he who is skilled than he who is unskillful, he who is practised than he who is unpractised, and the same person judges better after he has gained experience than he did before. But that which is capable of more and less is mutable, whence able men, who have thought deeply on these things, have gathered that the first form is not to be found in those things whose form is unchangeable. Since, therefore, they saw that body and mind might be more or less beautiful in form, and that if they wanted form they could have no existence, they saw that there is some existence in which is the first form, unchangeable, and therefore not admitting of degrees of comparison, and in that they most rightly believed was the first principle of things which was not made, and by which all things were made. Therefore that which is known of God he manifested to them when his invisible things were seen by them, being understood by those things which have been made. Also his eternal power and Godhead by whom all visible and temporal things have been created. We have said enough upon that part of theology, which they call physical, that is, natural. CHAPTER seven then again as far as regards the doctrine which treats of that which they call logic that is rational philosophy far be it from us to compare them with those who attributed to the bodily senses the faculty of discriminating truth and thought that all we learn is to be measured by their untrustworthy and fallacious rules such were the epicureans and all of the same school such also were the stoics who ascribed to the bodily senses that expertness and disputation which they so ardently love called by them dialectic asserting that from the senses the mind conceives the notions of those things which they explicate by definition and hence is developed the whole plan and connection of their learning and teaching I often wonder with respect to this how they can say that none are beautiful but the wise for by what bodily sense have they perceived that beauty by what eyes of the flesh have they seen wisdom's comeliness of form those however whom we justly rank before all others have distinguished those things which are conceived by the mind from those which are perceived by the senses neither taking away from the senses anything to which they are competent nor attributing to them anything beyond their competency in the light of our understandings by which all things are learned by us, they have affirmed to be that selfsame God by whom all things were made. Chapter eight. The remaining part of philosophy is morals, or what is called by the Greeks ethike, in which is discussed the question concerning the chief good, that which will leave us nothing further to seek in order to be blessed, if only we make all our actions refer to it, and seek it not for the sake of something else, but for its own sake therefore it is called the end because we wish other things on account of it but itself only for its own sake this beatific good therefore according to some comes to a man from the body according to others from the mind and according to others from both together For they saw that man himself consists of soul and body, and therefore they believed that from either of these two, or from both together, their well-being must proceed, consisting in a certain final good which could render them blessed, and to which they might refer all their actions, not requiring anything ulterior to which to refer that good itself. This is why those who have added a third kind of good things, which they call extrinsic, as honour, glory, wealth, and the like, have not regarded them as part of the final good, that is, to be sought after for their own sake, but as things which are to be sought for the sake of something else, affirming that this kind of good is good to the good, and evil to the evil. Wherefore, whether they have sought the good of man from the mind, or from the body, or from both together, it is still only for man they have supposed that it must be sought. But they who have sought it from the body have sought it from the inferior part of man, they who have sought it from the mind from the superior part, and they who have sought it from both, from the whole man. Whether, therefore, they have sought it from any part, or from the whole man, still they have only sought it from man. Nor have these differences, being three, given rise to only three dissentient sects of philosophers, but to many. For diverse philosophers have held diverse opinions both concerning the good of the body, and the good of the mind, and the good of both together. Let therefore all these give place to those philosophers who have not affirmed that a man is blessed by the enjoyment of the body, or by the enjoyment of the mind, but by the enjoyment of God. Enjoying him, however, not as the mind does the body, or itself, or as one friend enjoys another, but as the eye enjoys light, if indeed we may draw any comparison between these things. But what the nature of this comparison is, will, if God help me, be shown in another place to the best of my ability. At present it is sufficient to mention that Plato determined the final good to be to live according to virtue, and affirmed that he only can attain to virtue who knows and imitates God, which knowledge and imitation are the only cause of blessedness. Therefore he did not doubt that to philosophize is to love God, whose nature is incorporeal. Whence it certainly follows that the student of wisdom, that is, the philosopher, will then become blessed when he shall have begun to enjoy God. For though he is not necessarily blessed who enjoys that which he loves, for many are miserable by loving that which ought not to be loved, and still more miserable when they enjoy it, nevertheless no one is blessed who does not enjoy that which he loves. For even they who love things which ought not to be loved do not count themselves blessed by loving merely, but by enjoying them. Who then but the most miserable will deny that he is blessed who enjoys that which he loves, and loves the true and highest good? But the true and highest good, according to Plato, is God, and therefore he would call him a philosopher who loves God, for philosophy is directed to the obtaining of the blessed life, and he who loves God is blessed in the enjoyment of God. Chapter nine. Whatever philosophers therefore thought concerning the supreme God, that he is both the maker of all created things, the light by which things are known, and the good in reference to which things are to be done, that we have in him the first principle of nature, the truth of doctrine, and the happiness of life, whether these philosophers may be more suitably called Platonists, or whether they may give some other name to their sect, whether we say that only the chief men of the Ionic School, such as Plato himself, and they who have well understood him, have thought thus, or whether we also include the Italic School, on account of Pythagoras and the Pythagoreans, and all who may have held like opinions, and, lastly, whether also we include all who have been held wise men and philosophers among all nations, who were discovered to have seen and taught this, be they Atlantics, Libyans, Egyptians, Indians, Persians, Chaldeans, Scythians, Gauls, Spaniards, or of other nations, we prefer these to all other philosophers and confess that they approach nearest to us, chapter ten. For although a Christian man, instructed only in ecclesiastical literature, may perhaps be ignorant of the very name of Platonists, and may not even know that there have existed two schools of philosophers speaking the Greek tongue, to wit the Ionic and the Italic, he is nevertheless not so deaf with respect to human affairs as not to know that philosophers profess the study and even the possession of wisdom. He is on his guard, however, with respect to those who philosophize according to the elements of this world, not according to God, by whom the world itself was made, For he is warned by the precept of the apostle, and faithfully hears what has been said. Beware that no one deceive you through philosophy and vain deceit, according to the elements of the world. Then, that he may not suppose that all philosophers are such as do this, he hears the same apostle say concerning certain of them, Because that which is known of God is manifest among them, for God has manifested it to them. For his invisible things from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things which are made, also his eternal power and Godhead. And when speaking to the Athenians, after having spoken a mighty thing concerning God, which few are able to understand, in him we live and move and have our being, he goes on to say, As certain also of your own have said. He knows well, too, to be on his guard against even these philosophers and their errors. For where it has been said by him, that God is manifested to them by those things which are made, his invisible things, that they might be seen by the understanding, there it has also been said, that they did not rightly worship God himself, because they paid divine honours, which are due to him alone, to other things also to which they ought not to have paid them because knowing god they glorified him not as god neither were thankful but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened professing themselves to be wise they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible god into the likeness of the image of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things where the apostle would have us understand him as meaning the Romans, and Greeks, and Egyptians, who gloried in the name of wisdom, but concerning this we will dispute with them afterwards. With respect, however, to that wherein they agree with us, we prefer them to all others, namely concerning the one God, the author of this universe, who is not only above every body, being incorporeal, but also above all souls, being incorruptible, our principle, our light, our good." and though the christian man being ignorant of their writings does not use in disputation words which he has not learned not calling that part of philosophy natural which is the latin term or physical which is the greek one which treats of the investigation of nature or that part rational or logical which deals with the question how truth may be discovered or that part moral or ethical which concerns morals and shows how good is to be sought and evil to be shunned he is not therefore ignorant that it is from the one true and supremely good god that we have that nature in which we are made in the image of god and that doctrine by which we know him and ourselves and that grace through which by cleaving to him we are blessed This, therefore, is the cause why we prefer these to all the others, because, whilst other philosophers have worn out their minds and powers in seeking the causes of things, and endeavouring to discover the right mode of learning and of living, these, by knowing God, have found where resides the cause by which the universe has been constituted, and the light by which truth is to be discovered, and the fountain at which felicity is to be drunk. All philosophers, then, who have had these thoughts concerning God, whether Platonists or others, agree with us but we have thought it better to plead our cause with the Platonists, because their writings are better known. For the Greeks, whose tongue holds the highest place among the languages of the Gentiles, are loud in their praises of these writings. And the Latins, taken with their excellence or their renown, have studied them more heartily than other writings, and by translating them into our tongue have given them greater celebrity and notoriety. CHAPTER Eleven certain partakers with us in the grace of christ wonder when they hear and read that plato had conceptions concerning god in which they recognize considerable agreement with the truth of our religion Some have concluded from this that when he went to Egypt he had heard the prophet Jeremiah, or, whilst travelling in the same country, had read the prophetic scriptures which opinion I myself have expressed in certain of my writings. But a careful calculation of dates contained in chronological history shows that Plato was born about a hundred years after the time in which Jeremiah prophesied, and, as he lived eighty-one years, there are found to have been about seventy years from his death to that time when Ptolemy, king of Egypt, requested the prophetic scriptures of the Hebrew people to be sent to him from Judea, and committed them to seventy Hebrews, who also knew the Greek tongue to be translated and kept. Therefore, on that voyage of his, Plato could neither have seen Jeremiah, who was dead so long before, nor have read those same scriptures which had not yet been translated into the Greek language, of which he was a master, unless, indeed, we say, that as he was most earnest in the pursuit of knowledge, he also studied those writings through an interpreter as he did those of the Egyptians. Not, indeed, writing a translation of them, the facilities for doing which were only gained even by Ptolemy in return for munificent acts of kindness, though fear of his kingly authority might have seemed sufficient motive but learning as much as he possibly could concerning their contents by means of conversation what warrants this supposition are the opening verses of genesis in the beginning god made the heaven and the earth and the earth was invisible and without order and darkness was over the abyss and the spirit of god moved over the waters for in the timaeus when writing on the formation of the world he says that god first united earth and fire from which it is evident that he assigns to fire a place in heaven this opinion bears a certain resemblance to the statement in the beginning god made heaven and earth Plato next speaks of those two intermediary elements, water and air, by which the other two extremes, namely earth and fire, were mutually united, from which circumstance he is thought to have so understood the words, the Spirit of God moved over the waters. For not paying sufficient attention to the designations given by those scriptures to the Spirit of God, he may have thought that the four elements are spoken of in that place, because the air also is called Spirit. Then, as to Plato's saying that the philosopher is a lover of God, nothing shines forth more conspicuously in those sacred writings. But the most striking thing in this connection, and that which most of all inclines me almost to assent to the opinion that Plato was not ignorant of those writings, is the answer which was given to the question elicited from the holy Moses, when the words of God were conveyed to him by the angel. For when he asked what was the name of that God who was commanding him to go and deliver the Hebrew people out of Egypt, this answer was given, I am who am, and thou shalt say to the children of Israel, He who is sent me unto you. As though compared with him that truly is, because he is unchangeable, those things which have been created mutable are not, a truth which Plato zealously held and most diligently commended. And I know not whether this sentiment is anywhere to be found in the books of those who were before Plato, unless in that book where it is said, I am who am, and thou shalt say to the children of Israel, Who is sent me unto you. Chapter 12. But we need not determine from what source he learned these things, whether it was from the books of the ancients who preceded him, or, as is more likely, from the words of the Apostle, because that which is known of God has been manifested among them, for God hath manifested it to them. For his invisible things from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by those things which have been made, also his eternal power and Godhead. From whatever source he may have derived this knowledge, then, I think I have made it sufficiently plain that I have not chosen the Platonic philosophers undeservedly as the parties with whom to discuss, because the question we have just taken up concerns the natural theology-the question namely whether sacred rites are to be performed to one god or to many for the sake of the happiness which is to be after death. I have specially chosen them because their juster thoughts concerning the one god who made heaven and earth have made them illustrious among philosophers this has given them such superiority to all others in the judgment of posterity that though aristotle the disciple of plato a man of eminent abilities inferior in eloquence to plato yet far superior to many in that respect had founded the peripatetic sect so called because they were in the habit of walking about during their disputations. And though he had, through the greatness of his fame, gathered very many disciples into his school, even during the life of his master, and though Plato, at his death, was succeeded in a school, which was called the Academy, by Speusippus, his sister's son, and Xenocrates, his beloved disciple, who, together with their successors, were called from this name of the school, academics. Nevertheless, the most illustrious recent philosophers, who have chosen to follow Plato, have been on willing to be called peripatetics or academics, but have preferred the name of Platonists. Among these were the renowned Plotinus, Iamblichus, and Porphyry, who were Greeks, and the African Apuleius, who was learned both in the Greek and Latin tongues. All these, however, and the rest, who were of the same school, and also Plato himself, thought that sacred rites ought to be performed in honour of many gods. CHAPTER Thirteen. Therefore, although in many other important respects they differ from us, nevertheless with respect to this particular point of difference which I have just stated, as it is of great moment, and the question on hand concerns it, I will first ask them to what gods they think that sacred rites are to be performed, to the good or to the bad, or both the good and the bad. But we have the opinion of Plato affirming that all the gods are good, and that there is not one of the gods bad. It follows, therefore, that these are to be performed to the good, for then they are performed to gods; for if they are not good, neither are they gods. Now if this be the case, for what else ought we to believe concerning the gods? Certainly it explodes the opinion that the bad gods are to be propitiated by sacred rites in order that they may not harm us, but the good gods are to be invoked in order that they may assist us. For there are no bad gods, and it is to the good that, as they say, the due honour of such rites is to be paid. Of what character, then, are those gods who love scenic displays, even demanding that a place be given them among divine things, and that they be exhibited in their honour? The power of these gods proves that they exist, but their liking such things proves that they are bad. For it is well known what Plato's opinion was concerning scenic plays. He thinks that the poets themselves, because they have composed songs so unworthy of the majesty and goodness of the gods, ought to be banished from the state. Of what character, therefore, are those gods who contend with Plato himself about those scenic plays? He does not suffer the gods to be defamed by false crimes. The gods command those same crimes to be celebrated in their own honour. In fine, when they ordered these plays to be inaugurated, they not only demanded base things, but also did cruel things, taking from Titus Latinius his son, and setting a disease upon him because he had refused to obey them, which they removed when he had fulfilled their commands.' Plato, however, bad though they were, did not think they were to be feared, but, holding to his opinion with the utmost firmness and constancy, does not hesitate to remove from a well-ordered state all the sacrilegious follies of the poets with which these gods are delighted, because they themselves are impure. But Labeo places this same Plato, as I have mentioned already in the second book, among the demi-gods. Now Labbeo thinks that the bad deities are to be propitiated with bloody victims, and by fasts accompanied with the same, but the good deities with plays, and all other things which are associated with joyfulness. How comes it, then, that the demigod Plato so persistently dares to take away those pleasures, because he deems them base, not from the demigods, but from the gods, and these the good gods? and, moreover, those very gods themselves do certainly refute the opinion of Labeo, for they showed themselves, in the case of Latinius, not to be only wanton and sportive, but also cruel and terrible. Let the Platonists, therefore, explain these things to us, since, following the opinion of their master, they think that all the gods are good and honourable and friendly to the virtues of the wise, holding it unlawful to think otherwise concerning any of the gods. We will explain it, they say. Let us then attentively listen to them. Chapter 14. There is, say they, a threefold division of all animals endowed with a rational soul, namely into gods, men, and demons. The gods occupy the loftiest region, men the lowest, the demons the middle region. For the abode of the gods is heaven, that of men the earth, that of the demons the air. As the dignity of their regions is diverse, so also is that of their natures. Therefore the gods are better than men and demons. Men have been placed below the gods and demons, both in respect of the order of the regions they inhabit, and the differences of their merits. The demons, therefore, who hold the middle place, as they are inferior to the gods than whom they inhabit a lower region, so they are superior to men than whom they inhabit a loftier one. For they have immortality of body in common with the gods, but passions of the mind in common with men on which account say they it is not wonderful that they are delighted with the obscenities of the theatre and the fictions of the poets since they are also subject to human passions from which the gods are far removed and to which they are altogether strangers whence we conclude that it was not the gods who were all good and highly exalted that plato deprived of the pleasure of theatric plays by reprobating and prohibiting the fictions of the poets but the demons Of these things many have written, among others Apuleius, the Platonist of Medara, who composed a whole work on the subject, entitled Concerning the God of Socrates. He there discusses and explains of what kind that deity was who attended on Socrates, a sort of familiar, by whom it is said he was admonished to desist from any action which would not turn out to his advantage. He asserts most distinctly, and proves at great length, that it was not a god, but a demon, and he discusses with great diligence the opinion of Plato concerning the lofty estate of the gods, the lowly estate of men, and the middle estate of demons. These things being so, how did Plato dare to take away, if not from the gods, whom he removed from all human contagion, certainly from the demons, all the pleasures of the theatre, by expelling the poets from the state? Evidently in this way he wished to admonish the human soul, although still confined in these moribund members, to despise the shameful commands of the demons, and to detest their impurity, and to choose rather the splendour of virtue. But if Plato showed himself virtuous in answering and prohibiting these things, then certainly it was shameful of the demons to command them. Therefore either Apuleius is wrong, and Socrates is familiar, did not belong to this class of deities, or Plato held contradictory opinions, now honouring the demons, now removing from the well-regulated state the things in which they delighted, or Socrates is not to be congratulated on the friendship of the demon, of which Apuleius was so ashamed that he entitled his book On the God of Socrates, whilst according to the tenor of his discussion, wherein he so diligently and at such length distinguishes gods from demons, he ought not to have entitled it concerning the god, but concerning the demon of Socrates. But he preferred to put this into the discussion itself, rather than into the title of his book. For through the sound doctrine which has illuminated human society, all, or almost all, men have such a horror at the name of demons, that every one who, before reading the dissertation of Apuleius, which sets forth the dignity of demons, should have read the title of the book, On the Demon of Socrates, would certainly have thought that the author was not a sane man." But what did even Apuleius find to praise in the demons except subtlety and strength of body, and a higher place of habitation? For when he spoke generally concerning their manners, he said nothing that was good, but very much that was bad. Finally, no one, when he has read that book, wonders that they desired to have even the obscenity of the stage among divine things, or that wishing to be thought gods they should be delighted with the crimes of the gods, or that all those sacred solemnities, whose obscenity occasions laughter, and whose shameful cruelty causes horror, should be in agreement with their passions. End of book eight, chapters one through fourteen. Recording by Darren l Slider, Fort Worth, Texas www.logoslibrary.org Book 8, Chapter 15 of The City of God. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Darren L. Slider, www.logoslibrary.org. The City of God by St. Augustine of Hippo. Book 8, Chapter 15 Wherefore let not the mind truly religious and submitted to the true God suppose that demons are better than men, because they have better bodies. Otherwise it must put many beasts before itself which are superior to us, both in acuteness of the senses, in ease and quickness of movement, in strength and in long-continued vigour of body. What man can equal the eagle or the vulture in strength of vision? Who can equal the dog in acuteness of smell? who can equal the hare the stag and all the birds in swiftness who can equal in strength the lion or the elephant who can equal in length of life the serpents which are affirmed to put off old age along with their skin and to return to youth again But as we are better than all these by the possession of reason and understanding, so we ought also to be better than the demons by living good and virtuous lives. For divine providence gave to them bodies of a better quality than ours, that that in which we excel them might in this way be commended to us as deserving to be far more cared for than the body, and that we should learn to despise the bodily excellence of the demons compared with goodness of life, in respect of which we are better than they, knowing that we too shall have immortality of body not an immortality tortured by eternal punishment, but that which is consequent on purity of soul. But now, as regards loftiness of place, it is altogether ridiculous to be so influenced by the fact that the demons inhabit the air, and we the earth, as to think that on that account they are to be put before us, for in this way we put all the birds before ourselves.' But the birds, when they are weary with flying, or require to repair their bodies with food, come back to the earth to rest, or to feed, which the demons, they say, do not. Are they therefore inclined to say that the birds are superior to us, and the demons superior to the birds? But if it be madness to think so, there is no reason why we should think that on account of their inhabiting a loftier element the demons have a claim to our religious submission.' But as it is really the case that the birds of the air are not only not put before us who dwell on the earth, but are even subjected to us on account of the dignity of the rational soul which is in us, so also it is the case that the demons, though they are aerial, are not better than we who are terrestrial, because the air is higher than the earth, but, on the contrary, men are to be put before demons because their despair is not to be compared to the hope of pious men. Even that law of Plato's, according to which he mutually orders and arranges the four elements, inserting between the two extreme elements, namely fire, which is in the highest degree mobile, and the immovable earth, the two middle ones, air and water, that by how much the air is higher up than the water, and the fire than the air, by so much also are the waters higher than the earth, this law, I say, sufficiently admonishes us not to estimate the merits of animated creatures according to the grades of the elements. And Apuleius himself says that man is a terrestrial animal in common with the rest, who is nevertheless to be put far before aquatic animals, though Plato puts the waters themselves before the land. By this he would have us understand that the same order is not to be observed when the question concerns the merits of animals, though it seems to be the true one in the gradation of bodies. For it appears to be possible that a soul of a higher order may inhabit a body of a lower, and a soul of a lower order... A body of a higher. Chapter sixteen. The same Apuleius, when speaking concerning the manners of demons, says that they are agitated with the same perturbations of mind as men; that they are provoked by injuries, propitiated by services and by gifts, rejoice in honours, are delighted with a variety of sacred rites, and are annoyed if any of them be neglected. Among other things, he also says that on them depend the divinations of augurs, soothsayers, and prophets, and the revelations of dreams, and that from them also are the miracles of the magicians. But, when giving a brief definition of them, he says, Demons are of an animal nature, passive in soul, rational in mind, aerial in body, eternal in time. Of which five things, the three first are common to them and us, the fourth peculiar to themselves, and the fifth common to them with the gods. But I see that they have in common with the gods two of the first things which they have in common with us. For he says that the gods also are animals, and when he is assigning to every order of beings its own element, he places us among the other terrestrial animals which live and feel upon the earth. Wherefore, if the demons are animals as to genus, this is common to them not only with men, but also with the gods and with beasts.' if they are rational as to mind this is common to them with the gods and with men if they are eternal in time this is common to them with the gods only if they are passive as to their soul this is common to them with men only if they are aerial in body in this they are alone therefore it is no great thing for them to be of an animal nature for so also are the beasts In being rational as to mind, they are not above ourselves, for so are we also. And as to their being eternal as to time, what is the advantage of that if they are not blessed? For better is temporal happiness than eternal misery. Again, as to their being passive in soul, how are they in this respect above us, since we also are so, but would not have been so had we not been miserable?' also as to their being aerial in body how much value is to be set on that since a soul of any kind whatsoever is to be set above every body and therefore religious worship which ought to be rendered from the soul is by no means due to that thing which is inferior to the soul Moreover, if he had, among those things which he says belong to demons, enumerated virtue, wisdom, happiness, and affirmed that they have those things in common with the gods, and, like them, eternally, he would assuredly have attributed to them something greatly to be desired and much to be prized. And even in that case it would not have been our duty to worship them like God on account of these things, but rather to worship him from whom we know they had received them.' but how much less are they really worthy of divine honour, those aerial animals who are only rational that they may be capable of misery, passive that they may be actually miserable, and eternal that it may be impossible for them to end their misery chapter seventeen wherefore to omit other things, and confine our attention to that which he says is common to the demons with us, let us ask this question: If all the four elements are full of their own animals, the fire and the air of immortal, and the water and the earth of mortal ones, why are the souls of demons agitated by the whirlwinds and tempests of passions? For the Greek word pathos means perturbation, whence he chose to call the demons passive in soul, because the word passion, which is derived from pathos, signified a commotion of the mind contrary to reason. Why, then, are these things in the minds of demons which are not in beasts?' For if anything of this kind appears in beasts, it is not perturbation, because it is not contrary to reason, of which they are devoid. Now it is foolishness or misery which is cause of these perturbations in the case of men, for we are not yet blessed in the possession of that perfection of wisdom which is promised to us at last, when we shall be set free from our present mortality. But the gods, they say, are free from these perturbations, because they are not only eternal, but also blessed. For they also have the same kind of rational souls, but most pure from all spot and plague. Wherefore, if the gods are free from perturbation because they are blessed, not miserable animals, and the beasts are free from them because they are animals which are capable neither of blessedness nor misery, it remains that the demons, like men, are subject to perturbations, because they are not blessed, but miserable animals what folly therefore or rather what madness to submit ourselves through any sentiment of religion to demons when it belongs to the true religion to deliver us from that depravity which makes us like to them for apuleius himself although he is very sparing toward them and thinks they are worthy of divine honours is nevertheless compelled to confess that they are subject to anger and the true religion commands us not to be moved with anger but rather to resist it The demons are won over by gifts, and the true religion commands us to favour no one on account of gifts received. The demons are flattered by honours, but the true religion commands us by no means to be moved by such things. The demons are haters of some men, and lovers of others, not in consequence of a prudent and calm judgment, but because of what he calls their passive soul, whereas the true religion commands us to love even our enemies.' Lastly, the true religion commands us to put away all disquietude of heart, and agitation of mind, and also all commotions and tempests of the soul, which Apollaeus asserts to be continually swelling and surging in the souls of demons. Why, therefore, except through foolishness and miserable error, shouldst thou humble thyself to worship a being to whom thou desirest to be unlike in thy life? and why shouldst thou pay religious homage to him whom thou art unwilling to imitate when it is the highest duty of religion to imitate him whom thou worshippest chapter eighteen in vain therefore have apuleius and they who think with him conferred on the demons the honour of placing them in the air between the ethereal heavens and the earth that they may carry to the gods the prayers of men to men the answers of the gods for plato held they say that no god has intercourse with man They who believe these things have thought it unbecoming that men should have intercourse with the gods, and the gods with men but a befitting thing, that the demons should have intercourse with both gods and men, presenting to the gods the petitions of men, and conveying to men what the gods have granted. So that a chaste man, and one who is a stranger to the crimes of the magic arts, must use as patrons, through whom the gods may be induced to hear him, demons who love these crimes, although the very fact of his not loving them ought to have recommended to him to them as one who deserved to be listened to with greater readiness and willingness on their part.' They love the abominations of the stage, which chastity does not love. They love, in the sorceries of the magicians, a thousand arts of inflicting harm, which innocence does not love. Yet both chastity and innocence, if they wish to obtain anything from the gods, will not be able to do so by their own merits, except their enemies act as mediators on their behalf. Apuleius need not attempt to justify the fictions of the poets and the mockeries of the stage. If human modesty can act so faithlessly towards itself, as not only to love shameful things, but even to think that they are pleasing to the divinity, we can cite on the other side their own highest authority and teacher, Plato. Chapter 19 Moreover, against those magic arts, concerning which some men, exceedingly wretched and exceedingly impious, delight to boast, may not public opinion itself be brought forward as a witness. For why are those arts so severely punished by the laws, if they are the works of deities who ought to be worshipped? Shall it be said that the Christians have ordained those laws by which magic arts are punished? With what other meaning, except that these sorceries are without doubt pernicious to the human race, did the most illustrious poet say, by heaven I swear, and your dear life, unwillingly these arms I wield, and take, to meet the coming strife, enchantment sword and shield. And that also which he says in another place concerning the magic arts. I've seen him to another place transport the standing corn. Has reference to the fact that the fruits of one field are said to be transferred to another by these arts which this pestiferous and accursed doctrine teaches does not cicero inform us that among the laws of the twelve tables that is the most ancient laws of the romans there was a law written which appointed a punishment to be inflicted on him who should do this lastly was it before christian judges that apuleius himself was accused of magic arts had he known these arts to be divine and pious and congruous with the works of divine power he ought not only to have confessed but also to have professed them rather blaming the laws by which these things were prohibited and pronounced worthy of condemnation while they ought to have been held worthy of admiration and respect For by so doing, either he would have persuaded the judges to adopt his own opinion, or, if they had shown their partiality for unjust laws, and condemned him to death notwithstanding his praising and commending such things, the demons would have bestowed on his soul such rewards as he deserved, who, in order to proclaim and set forth their divine works, had not feared the loss of his human life.' As our martyrs, when that religion was charged on them as a crime, by which they knew they were made safe and most glorious throughout eternity, did not choose, by denying it, to escape temporal punishments, but rather by confessing, professing, and proclaiming it, by enduring all things for it, with fidelity and fortitude, and, by dying for it, with pious calmness, put to shame the law by which that religion was prohibited, and caused its revocation.' But there is extant a most copious and eloquent oration of this Platonic philosopher, in which he defends himself against the charge of practising these arts, affirming that he is wholly a stranger to them, and only wishing to show his innocence by denying such things as cannot be innocently committed but all the miracles of the magicians who he thinks are justly deserving of condemnation are performed according to the teaching and by the power of demons why then does he think that they ought to be honoured for he asserts that they are necessary in order to present our prayers to the gods and yet their works are such as we must shun if we wish our prayers to reach the true god again i ask what kind of prayers of men does he suppose are presented to the good gods by the demons If magical prayers, they will have none such. If lawful prayers, they will not receive them through such beings. But if a sinner who is penitent pour out prayers, especially if he has committed any crime of sorcery, does he receive pardon through the intercession of those demons by whose instigation and help he has fallen into the sin he mourns? Or do the demons themselves, in order that they may merit pardon for the penitent, first become penitents because they have deceived them?' This no one ever said concerning the demons, for had this been the case, they would never have dared to seek for themselves divine honours. For how should they do so who desired by penitence to obtain the grace of pardon, seeing that such detestable pride could not exist along with the humility worthy of pardon? CHAPTER twenty but does any urgent and most pressing cause compel the demons to mediate between the gods and men that they may offer the prayers of men and bring back the answers from the gods and if so what pray is that cause what is that so great necessity because say they no god has intercourse with man most admirable holiness of god which has no intercourse with a supplicating man and yet has intercourse with an arrogant demon which has no intercourse with a penitent man and yet has intercourse with a deceiving demon which has no intercourse with a man fleeing for refuge to the divine nature and yet has intercourse with the demon feigning divinity which has no intercourse with a man seeking pardon and yet has intercourse with the demon persuading to wickedness which has no intercourse with a man expelling the poets by means of philosophical writings from a well-regulated state, and yet has intercourse with the demon requesting from the princes and priests of a state the theatrical performance of the mockeries of the poets, which has no intercourse with the man who prohibits the ascribing of crime to the gods and yet has intercourse with a demon who takes delight in the fictitious representation of their crimes, which has no intercourse with the man punishing the crimes of the magicians by just laws and yet has intercourse with the demon and teaching and practicing the magical arts which has no intercourse with the man shunning the imitation of a demon and yet has intercourse with a demon lying in wait for the deception of a man chapter 21 but herein no doubt lies the great necessity for this absurdity so unworthy of the gods that the ethereal gods who are concerned about human affairs would not know what terrestrial men were doing unless the aerial demons should bring them intelligence because the ether is suspended far away from the earth and far above it but the air is contiguous both to the ether and to the earth o admirable wisdom what else do these men think concerning the gods who they say are all in the highest degree good but that they are concerned about human affairs lest they should seem unworthy of worship whilst on the other hand from the distance between the elements they are ignorant of terrestrial things It is on this account that they have supposed the demons to be necessary as agents through whom the gods may inform themselves with respect to human affairs, and through whom, when necessary, they may succour men, and it is on account of this office that the demons themselves have been held as deserving of worship. If this be the case, then a demon is better known by these good gods through nearness of body than a man is by goodness of mind o mournful necessity or shall i not rather say detestable and vain error that i may not impute vanity to the divine nature for if the gods can with their minds free from the hindrance of bodies see our mind they do not need the demons as messengers from our mind to them but if the ethereal gods by means of their bodies perceive the corporeal indices of minds as the countenance speech motion and thence understand what the demons tell them then it is also possible that they may be deceived by the falsehoods of demons moreover if the divinity of the gods cannot be deceived by the demons neither can it be ignorant of our actions but I would, they would tell me, what whether the demons have informed the gods that the fictions of the poets concerning the crimes of the gods displease Plato, concealing the pleasure which they themselves take in them, or whether they have concealed both, and have preferred that the gods should be ignorant with respect to this whole matter, or have told both, as well the pious prudence of Plato with respect to the gods as their own lust, which is injurious to the gods, or whether they have concealed Plato's opinion, according to which he was unwilling that the gods should be defamed with false. alleged crimes through the impious license of the poets whilst they have not been ashamed nor afraid to make known their own wickedness which make them love theatrical plays in which the infamous deeds of the gods are celebrated Let them choose which they will of these four alternatives, and let them consider how much evil any one of them would require them to think of the gods. For if they choose the first, they must then confess that it was not possible for the good gods to dwell with the good Plato, though he sought to prohibit things injurious to them, whilst they dwelt with evil demons who exulted in their injuries. And this, because they supposed that the good gods can only know a good man placed at so great a distance from them through the mediation of evil demons, whom they could know on account of their nearness to them. If they shall choose the second, and shall say that both these things are concealed by the demons, so that the gods are wholly ignorant both of Plato's most religious law and the sacrilegious pleasure of the demons, what in that case can the gods know to any profit with respect to human affairs through these mediating demons, when they do not know those things which are decreed through the piety of good men for the honour of the good gods against the lust of evil demons?' but if they shall choose the third and reply that these intermediary demons have communicated not only the opinion of plato which prohibited wrongs to be done to the gods but also their own delight in these wrongs i would ask if such a communication is not rather an insult Now the gods, hearing both and knowing both, not only permit the approach of those malign demons who desire and do things contrary to the dignity of the gods and the religion of Plato, but also, through these wicked demons who are near to them, send good things to the good Plato, who is far away from them. For they inhabit such a place, in the concatenated series of the elements, that they can come into contact with those by whom they are accused, but not with him by whom they are defended. Knowing the truth on both sides, but not being able to change the weight of the air and the earth. There remains the fourth supposition, but it is worse than the rest— For who will suffer it to be said that the demons have made known the calumnious fictions of the poets concerning the immortal gods, and also the disgraceful mockeries of the theatres, and their own most ardent lust after and most sweet pleasure in these things, whilst they have concealed from them that Plato, with the gravity of a philosopher, gave it as his opinion that all these things ought to be removed from a well-regulated republic, so that the good gods are now compelled through such messengers to know the evil doings of the most wicked beings, that is to say, of the messengers themselves, and are not allowed to know the good deeds of the philosophers, though the former are for the injury, but these latter for the honour of the gods themselves. Chapter twenty two None of these four alternatives, then, is to be chosen, for we dare not suppose such unbecoming things concerning the gods as the adoption of any one of them would lead us to think it remains therefore that no credence whatsoever is to be given to the opinion of apuleius and the other philosophers of the same school namely that the demons act as messengers and interpreters between the gods and men to carry our petitions from us to the gods and to bring back to us the help of the gods On the contrary, we must believe them to be spirits most eager to inflict harm, utterly alien from righteousness, swollen with pride, pale with envy, subtle in deceit, who dwell indeed in this air as in a prison, in keeping with their own character, because, cast down from the height of the higher heaven, they have been condemned to dwell in this element as the just reward of irretrievable transgression but though the air is situated above the earth and the waters they are not on that account superior in merit to men who though they do not surpass them as far as their earthly bodies are concerned do nevertheless far excel them through piety of mind they having made choice of the true god as their helper Over many, however, who are manifestly unworthy of participation in the true religion, they tyrannise as over captives whom they have subdued, the greatest part of whom they have persuaded of their divinity by wonderful and lying signs, consisting either of deeds or of predictions. Some, nevertheless, who have more attentively and diligently considered their vices, they have not been able to persuade that they are gods, and so have feigned themselves to be messengers between the gods and men.' Some, indeed, have thought that not even this latter honour ought to be acknowledged as belonging to them, not believing that they were gods, because they saw that they were wicked, whereas the gods, according to their view, are all good. Nevertheless, they dared not say that they were wholly unworthy of all divine honour, for fear of offending the multitude, by whom, through inveterate superstition, the demons were served by the performance of many rites, and the erection of many temples. CHAPTER Twenty-Three. The Egyptian Hermes, whom they called Trismegistus, had a different opinion concerning those demons. Apollaeus, indeed, denies that they are gods, but when he says that they hold a middle place between the gods and men, so that they seem to be necessary for men as mediators between them and the gods, he does not distinguish between the worship due to them and the religious homage due to the supernal gods. This Egyptian, however, says that there are some gods made by the supreme god and some made by men. Any one who hears this, as I have stated it, no doubt supposes that it has reference to images, because they are the works of the hands of men. But he asserts that visible and tangible images are, as it were, only the bodies of the gods, and that there dwell in them certain spirits which have been invited to come into them, and which have power to inflict harm, or to fulfil the desires of those by whom divine honours and services are rendered to them. To unite, therefore, by a certain art, those invisible spirits to visible and material things, so as to make, as it were, animated bodies, dedicated and given up to those spirits who inhabit them, this, he says, is to make gods, adding that men have received this great and wonderful power. I will give the words of this Egyptian as they have been translated into our tongue. And, since we have undertaken to discourse concerning the relationship and fellowship between men and the gods, know, O Aesculapius, the power and strength of man. As the Lord and Father, or that which is highest, even God, is the maker of the celestial gods, so man is the maker of the gods who are in the temples, content to dwell near to men. And a little after he says... Thus humanity, always mindful of its nature and origin, perseveres in the imitation of divinity. And as the Lord and Father made eternal gods, that they should be like himself, so humanity fashioned its own gods according to the likeness of its own countenance. When this Aesculapius, to whom especially he was speaking, had answered him, and had said, Dost thou mean the statues, O Trismegistus? yes the statues replied he however unbelieving thou art o aesculapius the statues animated and full of sensation and spirit and who do such great and wonderful things the statues prescient of future things and foretelling them by lot by profit by dreams and many other things who bring diseases on men and cure them again giving them joy or sorrow according to their merits Dost thou not know, O Aesculapius, that Egypt is an image of heaven, or more truly a translation and descent of all things which are ordered and transacted there, that it is, in truth, if we may say so, to be the temple of the whole world? And yet, as it becomes the prudent man to know all things beforehand, ye ought not to be ignorant of this, that there is a time coming, when it shall appear that the Egyptians have all in vain, with pious mind, and with most scrupulous diligence, waited on the divinity, and when all their holy worship shall come to naught, and be found to be in vain. Hermes then follows out at great length the statements of this passage, in which he seems to predict the present time, in which the Christian religion is overthrowing all lying figments with a vehemence and liberty proportioned to its superior truth and holiness, in order that the grace of the true Saviour may deliver men from those gods which man has made, and subject them to that god by whom man was made. But when Hermes predicts these things, he speaks as one who is a friend to these same mockeries of demons, and does not clearly express the name of Christ. On the contrary, he deplores, as if it had already taken place, the future abolition of those things by the observance of which there was maintained in Egypt a resemblance of heaven. He bears witness to Christianity by a kind of mournful prophecy. Now it was with reference to such that the apostle said, that knowing god they glorified him not as god neither were thankful but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened professing themselves to be wise they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible god into the likeness of the image of corruptible man and so on for the whole passage is too long to quote For Hermes makes many such statements agreeable to the truth concerning the one true God who fashioned this world. And I know not how he has become so bewildered by that darkening of the heart as to stumble into the expression of a desire that men should always continue in subjection to those gods which he confesses to be made by men, and to bewail their future removal, as if there could be anything more wretched than mankind tyrannized over by the work of his own hands, since man, by worshipping the works of his own hands, may more easily cease to be man, than the works of his hands can, through his worship of them, become God's. For it can sooner happen that man who has received an honourable position may, through lack of understanding, become comparable to the beasts, than that the works of man may become preferable to the work of God, made in his own image, that is, to man himself. Wherefore, deservedly, is man left to fall away from him who made him, when he prefers to himself that which he himself has made. For these vain, deceitful, pernicious, sacrilegious things did the Egyptian Hermes sorrow, because he knew that the time was coming when they should be removed. But his sorrow was as impudently expressed as his knowledge was imprudently obtained. For it was not the Holy Spirit who revealed these things to him, as he had done to the holy prophets, who, foreseeing these things, said with exultation, If a man shall make gods, lo, they are no gods.' and in another place, and it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord, that I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land, and they shall no more be remembered. But the holy Isaiah prophesies expressly concerning Egypt in reference to this matter, saying, And the idols of Egypt shall be moved at his presence, and their hearts shall be overcome in them, and other things to the same effect. And with the prophet are to be classed those who rejoiced that that which they knew was to come had actually come, as Simeon, or Anna, who immediately recognized Jesus when he was born, or Elizabeth, who in the Spirit recognized him when he was conceived, or Peter, who said by the revelation of the Father, Thou art Christ, the Son of the living God. But to this Egyptian those spirits indicated the time of their own destruction, who also, when the Lord was present in the flesh, said with trembling, Art thou come hither to destroy us before the time? Meaning by destruction before the time, either that very destruction which they expected to come, but which they did not think would come so suddenly as it appeared to have done, or only that destruction which consisted in their being brought into contempt by being made known.' And, indeed, this was the destruction before the time, that is, before the time of judgment, when they are to be punished with eternal damnation, together with all men who were implicated in their wickedness, as the true religion declares, which neither errs nor leads into error. For it is not like him who, blown hither and thither by every wind of doctrine, and mixing true things with things which are false, bewails as about to perish a religion which he afterwards confesses to be error. CHAPTER twenty-four after a long interval hermes again comes back to the subject of the gods which men have made saying as follows but enough on this subject let us return to man and to reason that divine gift on account of which man has been called a rational animal for the things which have been said concerning man wonderful though they are are less wonderful than those which have been said concerning reason for man to discover the divine nature and to make it surpasses the wonder of all other wonderful things Because, therefore, our forefathers erred very far with respect to the knowledge of the gods, through incredulity, and through want of attention to their worship and service, they invented this art of making gods. And this art once invented, they associated with it a suitable virtue borrowed from universal nature. And being incapable of making souls, they evoked those of demons or of angels, and united them with these holy images and divine mysteries, in order that through these souls the images might have power to do good or harm to men. I know not whether the demons themselves could have been made, even by adjuration, to confess, as he has confessed in these words. Because our forefathers erred very far with respect to the knowledge of the gods, through incredulity and through want of attention to their worship and service, they invented the art of making gods. Does he say that it was a moderate degree of error which resulted in their discovery of the art of making gods, or was he content to say they erred? no, he must needs add, very far, and say, they erred very far. It was this great error and incredulity, then, of their forefathers, who did not attend to the worship and service of the gods, which was the origin of the art of making gods. And yet this wise man grieves over the ruin of this art at some future time, as if it were a divine religion." is he not verily compelled by divine influence on the one hand to reveal the past error of his forefathers and by a diabolical influence on the other hand to bewail the future punishment of demons For if their forefathers, by erring very far with respect to the knowledge of the gods, through incredulity and aversion of mind from their worship and service, invented the art of making gods, what wonder is it that all that is done by this detestable art, which is opposed to the divine religion, should be taken away by that religion, when truth corrects error, faith refutes incredulity, and conversion rectifies aversion. For if he had only said, without mentioning the cause, that his forefathers had discovered the art of making gods, it would have been our duty, if we paid any regard to what is right and pious, to consider and to see that they could never have attained to this art if they had not erred from the truth, if they had believed those things which were worthy of God, if they had attended to divine worship and service however if we alone should say that the causes of this art were to be found in the great error and incredulity of men and aversion of the mind erring from and unfaithful to divine religion the impudence of those who resist the truth were in some way to be borne with But when he who admires in man, above all other things, this power which it has been granted him to practice, and sorrows because a time is coming when all those figments of gods invented by men shall even be commanded by the laws to be taken away, when even this man confesses nevertheless, and explains the causes which led to the discovery of this art, saying that their ancestors, through great error and incredulity, and through not attending to the worship and service of the gods, invented this art of making gods, What ought we to say, or rather to do, but to give to the Lord our God all the thanks we are able, because he has taken away those things by causes the contrary of those which led to their institution? For that which the prevalence of error instituted, the way of truth took away, that which incredulity instituted, faith took away, that which aversion for divine worship and service instituted, conversion to the one true and holy God took away. Nor was this the case only in Egypt, for which country alone the spirit of the demons lamented in Hermes, but in all the earth, which sings to the Lord a new song, as the truly holy and truly prophetic scriptures have predicted, in which it is written, Sing unto the Lord a new song, sing unto the Lord all the earth. For the title of this psalm is, When the house was built after the captivity for a house is being built to the lord in all the earth even the city of god which is the holy church after that captivity in which demons held captive those men who through faith in god became living stones in the house for although men made gods it did not follow that he who made them was not held captive by them when by worshipping them he was drawn into fellowship with them into the fellowship not of stolid idols, but of cunning demons. For what are idols, but what they are represented to be in the same scriptures? They have eyes, but they do not see, and, though artistically fashioned, are still without life and sensation. But unclean spirits associated through that wicked art with these same idols have miserably taken captive the souls of their worshippers by bringing them down into fellowship with themselves. Whence the apostle says, We know that an idol is nothing, but those things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God, and I would not ye should have fellowship with demons after this captivity therefore in which men were held by malign demons the house of god is being built in all the earth whence the title of that psalm in which it is said sing unto the lord a new song sing unto the lord all the earth sing unto the lord bless his name declare well his salvation from day to day declare his glory among the nations among all people his wonderful things For great is the Lord, and much to be praised. He is terrible above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are demons, but the Lord made the heavens. Wherefore he who sorrowed because a time was coming when the worship of idols should be abolished, and the domination of the demons over those who worshipped them, wished, under the influence of a demon, that that captivity should always continue, at the cessation of which that psalm celebrates the building of the house of the Lord in all the earth. Hermes foretold these things with grief, the prophet with joyfulness. And because the Spirit is victorious who sang these things through the ancient prophets, even Hermes himself was compelled in a wonderful manner to confess that those very things which he wished not to be removed, and at the prospect of whose removal he was sorrowful, had been instituted not by prudent, faithful, and religious, but by erring and unbelieving men, averse to the worship and service of the gods. And although he calls them gods, nevertheless, when he says, that they were made by such men as we certainly ought not to be, he shows, whether he will or not, that they are not to be worshipped by those who do not resemble these image-makers, that is, by prudent, faithful, and religious men, at the same time also making it manifest that the very men who made them involve themselves in the worship of those as gods who were not gods. For true is the saying of the prophet, If a man make gods, lo, they are no gods.' such gods therefore acknowledged by such worshippers and made by such men did hermes call gods made by men that is to say demons through some art of i know not what description bound by the chains of their own lusts to images But, nevertheless, he did not agree with that opinion of the Platonic Apuleius, of which we have already shown the incongruity and absurdity, namely, that they were interpreters and intercessors between the gods whom God made, and men whom the same God made, bringing to God the prayers of men, and from God the gifts given in answer to these prayers. For it is exceedingly stupid to believe that gods whom men have made have more influence with gods whom God has made than men themselves have whom the very same God has made and consider too that it is a demon which bound by a man to an image by means of an impious art has been made a god but a god to such a man only not to every man what kind of god therefore is that which no man would make but one erring incredulous and averse to the true god Moreover, if the demons which are worshipped in the temples, being introduced by some kind of strange art into images, that is, into visible representations of themselves, by those men who by this art made gods when they were straying away from, and were averse to the worship and service of the gods, if I say those demons are neither mediators nor interpreters between men and the gods, both on account of their own most wicked and base errors, and because men, though erring, incredulous, and averse from the worship and service of the gods, are nevertheless, beyond doubt better than the demons whom they themselves have evoked, then it remains to be affirmed that what power they possess, they possess as demons, doing harm by bestowing pretended benefits, harm all the greater for the deception, or else openly and undisguisedly doing evil to men. They cannot, however, do anything of this kind unless where they are permitted by the deep and secret providence of God, and then only so far as they are permitted when, however, they are permitted, it is not because they, being midway between men and the gods, have through the friendship of the gods great power over men, for these demons cannot possibly be friends to the good gods who dwell in the holy and heavenly habitation, by whom we mean holy angels and rational creatures, whether thrones or dominations or principalities or powers, from whom they are as far separated in disposition and character as vice is distant from virtue, wickedness from goodness. CHAPTER twenty-five. Wherefore we must by no means seek, through the supposed mediation of the demons, to avail ourselves of the benevolence or beneficence of the gods, or rather of the good angels, but through resembling them in the possession of a good will, through which we are with them, and live with them, and worship with them, the same God, although we cannot see them with the eyes of our flesh. But it is not in locality we are distant from them, but in merit of life, caused by our miserable unlikeness to them in will, and by the weakness of our character. For the mere fact of our dwelling on earth under the conditions of life in the flesh does not prevent our fellowship with them. It is only prevented when we, in the impurity of our hearts, mind earthly things. But in this present time, while we are being healed that we may eventually be as they are, we are brought near to them by faith, if by their assistance we believe that he who is their blessedness is also ours chapter twenty six it is certainly a remarkable thing how this egyptian when expressing his grief that a time was coming when those things would be taken away from egypt which he confesses to have been invented by men erring incredulous and, and averse to the service of divine religion says among other things then shall that land the most holy place of shrines and temples be full of sepulchres and dead men as if in sooth if these things were not taken away men would not die as if dead bodies could be buried elsewhere than in the ground as if as time advanced the number of sepulchres must not necessarily increase in proportion to the increase of the number of the dead but they who are of a perverse mind and opposed to us suppose to what he grieves for us, that the memorials of our martyrs were to succeed to their temples and shrines in order forsooth that they may have grounds for thinking that gods were worshipped by the pagans in temples but that dead men are worshipped by us in sepulchres for with such blindness do impious men as it were stumble over mountains and will not see the things which strike their own eyes that they do not attend to the fact that in all the literature of the pagans there are not found any or scarcely any gods who have not been men to whom when dead divine honours have been paid i will not enlarge on the fact that varro says that all dead men are thought by them to be gods and proves it by those sacred rites which are performed in honour of almost all the dead among which he mentions funeral games considering this the very highest proof of divinity because games are only wont to be celebrated in honour of divinities hermes himself of whom we are now treating in that same book in which as if foretelling future things he says with sorrow then shall that land the most holy place of shrines and temples be full of sepulchres and dead men testifies that the gods of egypt were dead men For having said that their forefathers, erring very far with respect to the knowledge of the gods, incredulous and inattentive to the divine worship and service, invented the art of making gods, with which art, when invented, they associated the appropriate virtue which is inherent in universal nature, and by mixing up that virtue with this art, they called forth the souls of demons or of angels.' for they could not make souls and cause them to take possession of or associate themselves with holy images and divine mysteries in order that through these souls the images might have power to do good or harm to men having said this he goes on as it were to prove it by illustrations saying "'Thy grandsire, O Aesculapius, the first discoverer of medicine, to whom a temple was consecrated in a mountain of Libya, near to the shore of the crocodiles, in which temple lies his earthly man, that is, his body, for the better part of him, or rather the whole of him, if the whole man is in the intelligent life, went back to heaven, affords even now by his divinity all those helps to infirm men which formerly he was wont to afford them by the art of medicine.' he says therefore that a dead man was worshipped as a god in that place where he had his sepulchre he deceives men by a falsehood for the man went back to heaven then he adds does not hermes who was my grandsire and whose name i bear abiding in the country which is called by his name help and preserve all mortals who come to him from every quarter for this elder Hermes, that is, Mercury, who, he says, was his grandsire, is said to be buried in Hermopolis, that is, in the city called by his name. So here are two gods whom he affirms to have been men, Esculapius and Mercury. Now concerning Esculapius, both the Greeks and the Latins think the same thing. But as to Mercury, there are many who do not think that he was formerly immortal, though Hermes testifies that he was his grandsire. But are these two different individuals who were called by the same name? I will not dispute much whether they are different individuals or not. It is sufficient to know that this Mercury, of whom Hermes speaks, is as well as Aesculapius, a god who was once a man, according to the testimony of the same Trismegistus, esteemed so great by his countrymen, and also the grandson of Mercury himself. Hermes goes on to say, But do we know how many good things Isis, the wife of Osiris, bestows when she is propitious, and what great opposition she can offer when enraged? Then, in order to show that there were gods made by men through this art, he goes on to say, "'For it is easy for earthly and mundane gods to be angry being made and composed by men out of either nature,' thus giving us to understand that he believed that demons were formerly the souls of dead men, which, as he says, by means of a certain art invented by men very far in error, incredulous and irreligious, were caused to take possession of images, because they who made such gods were not able to make souls.' when therefore he says either nature he means soul and body the demon being the soul and the image the body what then becomes of that mournful complaint that the land of egypt the most holy place of shrines and temples was to be full of sepulchres and dead men Verily the fallacious spirit, by whose inspiration Hermes spoke these things, was compelled to confess through him that even already that land was full of sepulchres and of dead men, whom they were worshipping as gods. But it was the grief of the demons which was expressing itself through his mouth, who were sorrowing on account of the punishments which were about to fall upon them at the tombs of the martyrs. For in many such places they are tortured and compelled to confess, and are cast out of the bodies of men, of which they had taken possession." Chapter 27 But nevertheless, we do not build temples and ordain priests, rites, and sacrifices for these same martyrs, for they are not our gods, but their God is our God. Certainly, we honor their reliquaries as the memorials of holy men of God who strove for the truth even to the death of their bodies, that the true religion might be made known and false and fictitious religion exposed for if there were some before them who thought that these religions were really false and fictitious, they were afraid to give expression to their convictions. But whoever heard a priest of the faithful standing at an altar built for the honor and worship of God over the holy body of some martyr say in the prayers, "I offer to thee a sacrifice." O Peter, or O Paul, or O Cyprian, for it is to God that sacrifices are offered at their tombs, the God who made them both men and martyrs, and associated them with holy angels in celestial honour. And the reason why we pay such honours to their memory, is that by so doing we may both give thanks to the true God for their victories, and by recalling them afresh to remembrance, may stir ourselves up to imitate them by seeking to obtain like crowns and palms, calling to our help that same God on whom they called.' therefore whatever honours the religious may pay in the places of the martyrs they are but honours rendered to their memory not sacred rites or sacrifices offered to dead men as to gods and even such as bring to their food which indeed is not done by the better christians and in most places of the world is not done at all do so in order that it may be sanctified to them through the merits of the martyrs in the name of the lord of the martyrs first presenting the food and offering prayer and thereafter taking it away to be eaten or to be in part bestowed upon the needy But he who knows the one sacrifice of Christians, which is the sacrifice offered in those places, also knows that these are not sacrifices offered to the martyrs. It is then neither with divine honours nor with human crimes by which they worship their gods that we honour our martyrs. Neither do we offer sacrifices to them, or convert the crimes of the gods into their sacred rites. For let those who will and can read the letter of Alexander to his mother Olympias, in which he tells the things which were revealed to him by the priest Leon, and let those who have read it recall to memory what it contains that they may see what great abominations have been handed down to memory not by poets but by the mystic writings of the egyptians concerning the goddess isis the wife of osiris and the parents of both all of whom according to these writings were royal personages isis when sacrificing to her parents is said to have discovered a crop of barley of which she brought some ears to the king her husband and his counsellor mercurius and hence they identify her with ceres those who read the letter may there see what was the character of those people to whom when dead sacred rites were instituted as to gods and what those deeds of theirs were which furnished the occasion for these rites Let them not once dare to compare in any respect those people, though they hold them to be gods, to our holy martyrs, though we do not hold them to be gods. For we do not ordain priests and offer sacrifices to our martyrs as they do to their dead men, for that would be incongruous, undue, and unlawful, such being due only to God. And thus we do not delight them with their own crimes, or with such shameful plays as those in which the crimes of the gods are celebrated, which are either real crimes committed by them at a time when they were men, or else if they never were men fictitious crimes invented for the pleasure of noxious demons the god of socrates if he had a god cannot have belonged to this class of demons but perhaps they who wished to excel in this art of making gods imposed a god of this sort on a man who was a stranger to and innocent of any connection with that art what need we say more no one who is even moderately wise imagines that demons are to be worshipped on account of the blessed life which is to be after death but perhaps they will say that all the gods are good but that of the demons some are good and some bad and that it is the good who are to be worshipped in order that through them we may attain to the eternally blessed life to the examination of this opinion we will devote the following book end of book 8 chapters 15 through 27 Recording by Darren L. Slider, Fort Worth, Texas, www.logoslibrary.org.